0: International Short Stories, Volume 2 English Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Tyge Hines International Short Stories, Volume 2 English Stories Edited by William Patton Section 1 The Two Drovers by Sir Walter Scott Part 1 it was the day after Don Fair when my story commences. It had been a brisk market, several dealers had attended from the northern and midland counties in England, and English money had flown so merrily about as to gladden the hearts of the Highland farmers. Many large droves were about to set off for England, under the protection of their owners or of the topsmen whom they employed in the tedious, laborious, and responsible office of driving the cattle for many hundred miles from the markets where they had been purchased to the fields or farmyards where they were to be fattened for the shambles. The Highlanders in particular are masters of this difficult trade of driving, which seems to suit them as well as the trade of war. It affords exercise for all their habits of patient endurance and active exertion. They are required to know perfectly the drove roads which lie over the wildest tracts of the country, and to avoid as much as possible the highways which distress the feet of the bullocks and the turnpikes which annoy the spirit of the drover. Whereas on the broad green or grey track which leads across the pathless moor, the herd not only move at ease and without taxation, but, if they mind their business, may pick up a mouthful of food by the way. At night the drovers usually steep along with their cattle, let the weather be what it will, and many of these hardy men do not once rest under a roof during a journey on foot from the harbour to Lincolnshire. They are paid very highly, for the trust reposed is of the last importance, as it depends on their prudence, vigilance and honesty whether the cattle reach the final market in good order and afford a profit to the grazier. But, as they maintain themselves at their own expense, they are especially economical in that particular. At the period we speak of, a highland drover was victualled for his long and toilsome journey with a few handfuls of oatmeal and two or three onions, Renewed from time to time, and a ram's horn filled with whisky, which he used regularly but sparingly every night and morning. His dirk or skeen do, that is, black knife, so worn as to be concealed beneath the arm or by the folds of the plaid, was his only weapon, excepting the cudgel with which he directed the movements of the cattle. A Highlander was never so happy as on these occasions. There was a variety in the whole journey which exercised the Celts' natural curiosity and love of motion. There were the constant change of place and scene, the petty adventures incidental to the traffic, and the intercourse with the various farmers, graziers and traders, intermingled with occasional merry-makings, not the less acceptable to Donald that they were void of expense. And there was the consciousness of superior skill. For the Highlander, a child amongst flocks, is a prince amongst herds. And his natural habits induce him to disdain the shepherd's slothful life so that he feels himself nowhere more at home than when following a Gallant drove of his country castle in the character of their guardian Of the number who left doon in the morning and with the purpose we have described Not a gloomy of them all cocked his bonnet more briskly or gartered his tartan hose under knee over a pair of more Promising spigs that is legs than did Robin oig McCombick called familiarly Robin oig that is young, or the lesser robin, though small of stature, as the epithet "oig" implies, and not very strongly limbed, he was as light and alert as one of the deer of his mountains. He had an elasticity of step which, in the course of a long march, made many a stout fellow envy him, and the manner in which he busked his plaid and adjusted his bonnet argued a consciousness that so smart a John Highland man as himself would not pass unnoticed among the lowland lasses. The ruddy cheek, red lips, and white teeth set off a countenance which had gained by exposure to the weather a healthful and hardy rather than a rugged hue. If Robin Oig did not laugh, or even smile frequently, as indeed is not the practice among his countrymen, his bright eyes usually gleamed from under his bonnet with an expression of cheerfulness ready to be turned into mirth. The departure of Robin Owick was an incident in the little town in and near which he had many friends, male and female. He was a topping person in his way, transacted considerable business on his own behalf, and was entrusted by the best farmers in the Highlands in preference to any other drover in that district. He might have increased his business to any extent had he condescended to manage it by deputy, but except a lad or two, sisters' sons of his own, Robin rejected the idea of assistance conscious perhaps how much his reputation depended upon his attending in person to the practical discharge of his duty in every instance he remained therefore contented with the highest premium given to persons of his description and comforted himself with the hopes that a few journeys to England might enable him to conduct business on his own account in a manner becoming his birth for Robin oig's father Lachlan McCombick or, son of my friend, his actual clan surname being MacGregor, had been so called by the celebrated Rob Roy, because of the particular friendship which had subsisted between the grandsire of Robin and that renowned Catteran. Some people even say that Robin Oig derived his Christian name from one as renowned in the wilds of Loch Lomond as ever was his namesake Robin Hood in the precincts of Merry Sherwood. Of such ancestry, as James Boswell says, who would not be proud? Robin oig was proud accordingly But his frequent visits to England and to the lowlands had given him tact enough to know that pretensions which still gave him a little Right to distinction in his own lonely Glen might be both obnoxious and ridiculous if preferred elsewhere The pride of birth therefore was like the miser's treasure the secret subject of his contemplation But never exhibited to strangers as a subject of boasting Many were the words of gratulation and good luck which were bestowed on Robin Oig. the judges commended his drove, especially Robin's own property, which were the best of them. Some thrust out their snuff-mulls for the parting pinch, others tended the jukandarach or parting cup. All cried, "Good luck, travel out with you, and come home with you. Give you luck in the Saxon market. Brave notes in the dew or black pocket-book, and plenty of English fold in the SPORRAN, that is pouch of goatskin the bonny lasses made their adieus more modestly and more than one it was said would have given her best brooch to be certain that it was upon her that his eye last rested as he turned towards the road robin owig had just given the preliminary hoo hoo to urge forward the loiterers of the drove when there was a cry behind him
1: stay robin By the blink here is janet of tomahoorwick old janet your father's sister Plague on her for an owl highland witch and spay wife,
0: said a farmer from the castle of Stirling.
1: She'll cast some of her cantrips on the cattle. She canna do that,
0: said another sapient of the same profession.
1: Robin Oig is no the lad to leave any of them without tying said mungo's knot on their tails. And that will put to her speed the best witch that ever flew over Dimiet upon a broomstick.
0: It may not be indifferent to the reader to know that the Highland cattle are peculiarly liable to be taken or infected by spells and witchcraft, which judicious people guard against by knitting knots of peculiar complexity on the tuft of hair which terminates the animal's tail. But the old woman who was the object of the farmer's suspicion seemed only busied about the drover, without paying any attention to the drove. Robin, on the contrary, appeared rather impatient of her presence what our world fancy he said has brought you so early from the ingleside this morning moom i am sure i bid you good evening and had your godspeed last night
1: and left me more siller than the useless old woman will use till you come back again bird of my bosom said the sibyl but it is little i would care for the food that nourishes me or the fire that warms me or for god's blessed son itself if aught but weal should happen to the grandson of my father So let me walk the diesel round you that you may go safe out into the far foreign land and come safe home
0: Robin oig stopped half embarrassed half laughing and signing to those around that he only complied with the old woman to soothe her humor in the meantime She traced around him with wavering steps the propitiation which some have thought has been derived from the druidical mythology it consists as is well known in the person who makes the diesel, walking three times round the person who is the object of the ceremony, taking care to move according to the course of the sun. At once, however, she stopped short and exclaimed, in a voice of alarm and horror,
1: Grandson of my father, there is blood on your hand. Hush, for God's sake, aunt, said Robin Oig. You will bring more trouble on yourself with this tashitara, second sight, then you will be able to get out of for many a day
0: the old woman only repeated with a ghastly look
1: there is blood on your hand and it is english blood the blood of the gale is richer and redder let us see let us
0: ere robinoy could prevent her which indeed could only have been by positive violence so hasty and peremptory were her proceedings she had drawn from his side the dirk which lodged in the folds of his plaid and held it up exclaiming although the weapon gleamed clear and bright in the sun
1: "Blood!" saxon blood again robin oig McCombick go not this day to england
0: tut tut answered robin oig that will never do neither it will be next thing to run in the country for shame moom give me the dark. you canny tell by the colour the difference betwixt the blood of a black bullock and a white one and you speak of knowing saxon from gaelic blood all men have their blood from adam moom give me my skein do and let me go on my road I should have been halfway to stirling by this time give me my dirk and let me go
1: Never will I give it to you
0: said the old woman
1: never will I quit my hold upon your plaid unless you promise me not to wear that unhappy weapon
0: The women around him urged him also Saying few of his aunt's words fell to the ground and as the lowland farmers continued to look moodily on the scene Robin oig determined to close it at any sacrifice well, then Said the young drover, giving the scabbard of the weapon to Hugh Morrison. You Lowlanders care nothing for these fleets. Keep my dirk for me. I cannot give it you because it was my father's, but your drove follows ours, and I am content it should be in your keeping, not in mine. Will this do, Moom? It must, said the old woman.
1: That is, if the Lowlander is mad enough to carry the knife.
0: The strong Westland man laughed aloud. (laughs) ha <laughs> good wife said he i am hugh morrison from glenay come of the manly morrisons of old lang syne that never took short weapon against a man in their lives and neither needed they they had their broadswords when i have this bit supple showing a formidable cudgel for dirking or the board i leave that to john highland man you needna snort none of you highlanders and you in a special robin i'll keep the bit knife if you are feared of the old staywise tail and give it back to you whenever you want it. Robin was not particularly pleased with some part of Hugh Morrison's speech, but he had learned in his travels more patience than belonged to his Highland constitution originally, and he accepted the service of the descendant of the manly Morrison's without finding fault with the rather deprecating manner in which it was offered. If he had not had his morning in his head and been but a drumfreeshire hog into the boot, he would have spoken more like a gentleman. But you cannot have more of a sow than a grump. It's shame my father's knife should ever slash a haggis for the like o' him. Thus saying, but saying it in Gaelic, Robin drove on his cattle, and waved farewell to all behind him. He was in the greater haste because he expected to join at Falkirk a comrade and brother in profession with whom he proposed to travel in company. Robin Oig's chosen friend was a young Englishman, Harry Wakefield by name well-known at every northern market and in his way as much famed and honored as our highland driver of Bullocks He was nearly six feet high Gallantly formed to keep the rounds at Straightfield or maintain the ring at a wrestling match And although he might have been overmatched perhaps among the regular professors of the fancy Yet as a yokel or rustic or a chance customer He was able to give a bellyful to any amateur of the pugilistic art Doncaster races saw him in his glory betting his guinea and generally successfully Nor was there a main fought in Yorkshire the feeders being persons of celebrity at which he was not to be seen if business permitted But though was sprack lad and fond of pleasures and its haunts Harry Wakefield was steady and not the cautious Robin o'ig Macombic himself was more attentive to the main chance His holidays were holidays indeed But his days of work were dedicated to steady and persevering labour in countenance and temper wakefield was the model of old england's merry yeomen whose cloth yard shafts in so many hundred battles asserted her superiority over the nations and whose good sabres in our own time are her cheapest and most assured defence his mirth was readily excited for strong in limb and constitution and fortunate in circumstances He was disposed to be pleased with everything about him and such difficulties as he might occasionally encounter were to a man of his energy Rather matter of amusement than serious annoyance With all the merits of a sanguine temper our young English drover was not without his defects He was irascible sometimes to the verge of being quarrelsome and perhaps not the less inclined to bring his disputes to a pugilistic decision because he found few antagonists able to stand up to him in the boxing ring. It is difficult to say how Harry Wakefield and Robin Oig first became intimates, but it is certain a close acquaintance had taken place betwixt them, although they had apparently few common subjects of conversation or of interest, so soon as their talk ceased to be of Bullock's. Robin Oig, indeed, spoke the English language rather imperfectly upon any other topics but stots and Kylo's, and Harry Wakefield could never bring his broad Yorkshire tongue to utter a single word of Gaelic. It was in vain Robin spent a whole morning, during a walk over Minch Moor, in attempting to teach his companion to utter, with true precision, the shibboleth the who, which is the Gaelic for a calf. From Tarquhar to Murder Cairn, the hill rung with the discordant attempts of the Saxon upon the unmanageable monosyllable, and the heartfelt laugh which followed every failure. They had, however, better modes of awakening the echoes, for Wakefield could sing many a ditty to the praise of Moll, Susan and Cicely, and Robin Oig had a particular gift at whistling interminable pibrocks through all their involutions, and what was more agreeable to his companion's southern ear, knew many of the northern airs, both lively and pathetic, to which Wakefield learned to pipe a bass. Thus, though Robin Oig could have hardly comprehended his companion's stories about horse-racing and cock-fighting or fox-hunting, and although his own legends of clan-fights and creas varied with talk of highland goblins and fairy folk would have been caviar to his companion, they contrived nevertheless to find a degree of pleasure in each other's company, which had, for three years back, induced them to join company and travel together, when the direction of their journey permitted. Each indeed found his advantage in this companionship for where could the englishman have found a guide through the western highlands like robin oig mccombic And when they were on what harry called the right side of the border his patronage Which was extensive and his purse which was heavy were at all times at the service of his highland friend and On many occasions his liberality did him genuine yeoman
1: service End of section 1 International short
0: stories volume 2 English stories This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Tige Hines International short stories volume 2 English stories edited by William Patton section 2 The two drovers by Sir Walter Scott Part two. Wherever two such loving friends, how could they disagree? Oh, thus it was, he loved him dear, and thought how to requite him, and having no friend left but he, he did resolve to fight him, duke upon duke. The pair of friends had traversed with their usual cordiality the grassy wilds of Lidsdale, and crossed the opposite part of Cumberland emphatically called the Waste. In these solitary regions the cattle under the charge of our drovers derived their subsistence chiefly by picking their food as they went along the drove road, or sometimes by the tempting opportunity of a start and oar loop, or invasion of the neighbouring pasture where an occasion presented itself. But now the scene changed before them; they were descending towards a fertile and enclosed country, where no such liberties could be taken with impunity or without previous arrangement and bargain with the possessors of the ground. This was more especially the case, as a great northern fair was upon the eve of taking place, where both the Scotch and the English drover expected to dispose of a part of their cattle, which it was desirable to produce in the market rested and in good order. Fields were therefore difficult to be obtained, and only upon high terms. This necessity occasioned a temporary separation betwixt the two friends who went to bargain, each as he could, for the separate accommodation of his herd. Unhappily it chanced that both of them, unknown to each other, thought of bargaining for the ground they wanted on the property of a country gentleman of some fortune, whose estate lay in the neighbourhood. The English drover applied to the bailiff on the property, who was known to him. It chanced that the Cumbrian squire, who had entertained some suspicions of his manager's honesty, was taking occasional measures to ascertain how far they were well founded and had desired that any inquiries about his enclosures with a view to occupy them for a temporary purpose should be referred to himself as However mr. I Iraby had gone the day before upon a journey of some miles distance to the northward the bailiff chose to consider the check upon his full powers as for the time removed and concluded that he could best consult his master's interest and perhaps his own In making an agreement with harry wakefield Meanwhile ignorant of what his comrade was doing robin oig on his side Chanced to be overtaken by a good-looking smart little man upon a pony most knowingly hogged and cropped as was then the fashion The rider wearing tight leather breeches and long-necked bright spurs This cavalier asked one or two pertinent questions about markets and the price of stock so Robin, seeing him a well judging civil gentleman, took the freedom to ask him whether he could let him know if there was any grassland to be let in the neighbourhood for the temporary accommodation of his drove. He could not have put the question to more willing ears. The gentleman of the Buckskins was the proprietor with whose bailiff Harry Wakefield had dealt, or was in the act of dealing. Thou art in good luck, my canny Scott, said Mr. Iraby, to have spoken to me. For I see thy cattle have done thy day's work, and I have at my disposal the only field within three miles that is to be let in these parts The drove can be gang two three four miles very pretty well indeed said the cautious Highlander
1: But what would his honor be asking for the beasts be the head if she was to take the part for two or three days? We won't differ
0: Sonny if you let me have six dots for winterers in the way of reason
1: And which beasts would your honor be for having?
0: Why, let me see the two black, the dun one, yon Doddy, him with a twisted horn, the brocket. How much by the head? Ah, said Robin. Your honour is a judge, a real judge. I couldn't have set off the best six beasts better myself, me that ken em as if they were my birds, poor things. Well, how much per head, Sawney? continued Mr Iraby. It was high markets at Doone and Falkirk, answered Robin. And Thus the conversation proceeded until they had agreed on the pre-just for the bullocks the squire throwing in the temporary Accommodation of the enclosure for the cattle into the boot and robin making as he thought a very good bargain Provided the grass was but tolerable The squire walked his pony alongside of the drove partly to show him the way and see him put into possession of the field and Partly to learn the latest news of the northern markets they arrived at the field and the pasture seemed excellent. But what was their surprise when they saw the bailiff quietly inducting the cattle of Harry Wakefield into the grassy goshen which had just been assigned to those of Robin Oig McCombick by the proprietor himself. Squire Ireby set spurs to his horse, dashed up to his servant, and, learning what had passed between the parties, briefly informed the English drover that his bailiff had let the ground without his authority, and that he might seek grass for his cattle wherever he would. Since he was to get none there at the same time he rebuked his servant severely for having transgressed his commands And ordered him instantly to assist in ejecting the hungry and weary cattle of Harry Wakefield Who were just beginning to enjoy a meal of unusual plenty and to introduce those of his comrade Whom the English drover now began to consider as a rival The feelings which arose in Wakefield's mind would have induced him to resist mr. Ireby's decision but every Englishman has a tolerably accurate sense of law and justice, and John Fleecebumpkin, the bailiff, having acknowledged that he had exceeded his commission, Wakefield saw nothing else for it than to collect his hungry and disappointed charge and drive them on to seek quarters elsewhere. Robin Oig saw what had happened with regret, and hastened to offer his English friend to share with him the disputed possession. But Wakefield's pride was severely hurt, and he answered disdainfully, take it all man take it all never make two bites of a cherry thou canst talk over the gentry and blear a plain man's eye out upon you man i would not kiss any man's dirty latchets for leave to bake in his oven robin oig sorry but not surprised at his comrade's displeasure hastened to entreat his friend to wait but an hour till he had gone to the squire's house to receive payment for the cattle he had sold and he would come back and help him to drive the cattle into some convenient place of rest and explained to him the whole mistake they had both of them fallen into, but the Englishman continued indignant. thou hast been selling hast thou ay ay, thou was a cunning lad for kenning the hours of bargaining. Go to the devil with thyself, for I will ne'er see thy false loon's visage again. Thou should be ashamed to look me in the face. I am ashamed to look no man in the face, said Robin Oick. something moved, and moreover. I will look you in the face this blessed day if you abide at the clochan down yonder. Mayhap you would as well keep away, said his comrade, and turning his back on his former friend, he collected his unwilling associates, assisted by the bailiff, who took some real and some affected interest in seeing Wakefield accommodated, after spending some time in negotiating with more than one of the neighbouring farmers who could not or would not afford the accommodation desired. Harry Wakefield, at last, and in his necessity, accomplished his point by means of the landlord of the alehouse at which Robin Oig and he had agreed to pass the night when they first separated from each other. Mine host was content to let him turn his cattle on a piece of barren moor at a price little less than the bailiff had asked for the disputed enclosure, and the wretchedness of the pasture, as well as the price paid for it, were set down as exaggerations of the breach of faith and friendship of a Scottish crony this turn of wakefield's passions was encouraged by the bailiff who had his own reasons for being offended against poor robin as Having been the unwitting cause of his falling into disgrace with his master as well as by the innkeeper and two or three chance Guests who stimulated the drover in his resentment against his quondam associate Some from the ancient grudge against the Scots Which when it exists anywhere is to be found lurking in the border counties and some from the general love of mischief which characterizes mankind in all ranks of life, to the honour of Adam's children be it spoken. Good John Barleycorn, also, who always heightens and exaggerates the prevailing passions, be they angry or kindly, was not wanting in his offices on this occasion, and confusion to false friends and hard masters was pledged in more than one tankard. In the meanwhile, Mr. Iraby found some amusement in detaining the northern drover at his ancient Hall He caused the cold round of beef to be placed before the Scot in the butler's pantry together with a foaming tankard of home Brewed and took pleasure in seeing the hearty appetite with which these unwanted edibles were discussed by Robin Og McCombick The Squire himself lighting his pipe Compounded between his patrician dignity and his love of agricultural gossip by walking up and down while he conversed with his guest I passed another drove said the squire with one of your countrymen behind them There were something less beasts than your drove Doddies most of them a big man was with them. none of your kilts though, but a decent pair of breeches. Do you know who he may be? Oh die that might could and would be Hughie Morrison I didn't think he would have been so well up He has made a day on us, but his argyle shires will have wearied shanks. How far was he behind? I think about six or seven miles," answered the squire, "for I passed them at christenbury Crag, and I overtook you at the Holland Bush. If his beasts be leg weary, he will be maybe selling bargains. Now, now, Hughie Morrison is no the man for bargains. Ye mun come to some Highland body like Robin Oak herself for the like o' these. But I mun be wishing you good night, and twenty of them, let alone one. And I'm one down to the clock and to see if the lad Harry Wackfelt is out of his home dudgeons yet. The party at the Alehouse were still in full talk, and the treachery of Robin Oig still the theme of conversation when the supposed culprit entered the apartment. His arrival, as usually happens in such a case, put an instant stop to the discussion of which he had furnished the subject and he was received by the company assembled with that chilling silence which more than a thousand exclamations tells an intruder that he is unwelcome surprised and offended but not appalled by the reception which he experienced robin entered with an undaunted and even a haughty air attempted no greeting as he saw he was received with none and placed himself by the side of the fire a little apart from a table at which harry wakefield the bailiff and two or three other persons were seated the ample Cumbrian kitchen would have afforded plenty of room even for a larger separation. Robin, thus seated, proceeded to light his pipe and call for a pint of twopenny. We have no tuppens ale, answered Ralph Heskett, the landlord, but as thou findst thy own tobacco, it's like thou mayst find thy own liquor too. It's the wont of thy country, I wot. Shame, good man, said the landlady, a blithe, bustling housewife, Hastening herself to supply the guest with liquor. Thou knowest well enough what the strange man wants, and it's thy trade to be civil man. Thou shouldst know that if the Scot likes a small pot, he pays a sure penny. Without taking any notice of this nuptial dialogue, the Highlander took the flagon in his hand, and addressing the company generally, drank the interesting toast of good markets to the party assembled.
1: The better that the wind
0: blew fewer dealers from the north. Said one of the farmers and fewer highland runts to eat up the english meadows Soul of my body, but you are wrong there my friend answered Robin with composure It's your fat Englishmen that eat up our scots cattle poor things I wish there was some to eat up their drovers said another a plain Englishman canna make bread with a kenning of them or an honest servant keep his master's favor, but they will come sliding in between him and the sunshine "'said the bailiff. "'If these be jokes,' said Robin Ogg, with the same composure, "'there is o'er money jokes upon one man.' "'It's no joke, but downright earnest,' said the bailiff. "'Harky, Mr. Robin Ogg, or whatever is your name, "'it's right we should tell you that we are all of one opinion, "'and that is that you, Mr. Robin Ogg, "'have behaved to our friend Mr. Harry Wakefield here "'like a raff and a blackguard.' Nay no doubt, nay no doubt." answered robin with great composure and you were a set of very pretty judges for whose brains or behavior I would not gee a pinch of sneezing if mr. Harry Wackfeld kens where he is wronged he kens where he may be righted He speaks truth said Wakefield who had listened to what had passed Divided between the offense which he had taken at robin's late behavior and the revival of his habitual feelings of regard he now rose and went towards robin who got up from his seat as he approached and held out his hand
1: that's right harry go it serve him out
0: resounded on all sides tip him the nailer show him the mill hold your peace all of you and be said wakefield and then addressing his comrade took him by the extended hand with something alike of respect and defiance robin he said thou hast used me ill enough this day but if you mean like a frank fellow to shake hands and take a tussle for love on the sod, why I forgive thee, man, and we shall be better friends than ever, and would it no be better to be good friends without more of the matter? said Robin. We will be much better friendships with our pains hailed than broken. Harry Wakefield dropped the hand of his friend, or rather threw it from him. I did not think I had been keeping company for three years with a coward coward belongs to none of my name, said Robin, whose eyes began to kindle. But keeping the command of his temper. It was no coward's legs or hands, Harry Wakefield that drew you out of the fords of Froo when you was drifted o'er the black rock, and every eel in the river expected a share of you. And that is true enough too, said the Englishman, struck by the appeal. Dad Zooks, exclaimed the bailiff. Sure Harry Wakefield, the nattiest lad at Whitson, Treest, Wooler Fair, Carlisle Sands, or Stagshaw Bank, is not going to show the white feather. This comes of living so long with kilts and bonnets. Men forget the use of their daddies. I may teach you, Master Fleecebumpkin, that I have not lost the use of mine, said Wakefield, and then went on. This will never do, Robin. We must have a turn-up, or we shall be the talk of the countryside. I'll be damned if I hurt thee. I'll put on the gloves gin the like. Come, stand forward like a man. To be beaten like a dog, said Robin, is there any reason in that? If you think I have done you wrong, I'll go before your judge, though I neither know his law nor his language. A general cry of, No, no, no law, no lawyer, a bellyful and be friends, was echoed by the bystanders. But, continued Robin, if I am to fight, I have no skill to fight like a jackanapes, with hands and nails. How would you fight then? said his antagonist. Though I'm thinking it would be hard to bring you to the scratch anyhow I Would fight with broadswords and sink point on the first blood drawn like a gentleman's A loud shout of laughter followed the proposal which indeed had rather escaped from poor Robin's swelling heart than had been the Dictate of a sober judgment Gentleman Quotha was echoed on all sides with a shout of unextinguishable laughter very pretty gentleman God what can't get two swords for the gentleman to fight with Ralph Heskett? No, but I can send to the armory at Carlisle, and lend them two forks to be making shift with in the meantime. Tush, man, said another. The bonnie Scots come into the world with a blue bonnet on their heads, a dark and pistol at their belt. Best send post, said Mr. Fleece Bumpkin, <laughs> to the squire of Corby Castle to come and stand second to the gentleman. In the midst of this torrent of general ridicule, the Highlander instinctively gripped beneath the folds of his plaid But it is better not he said in his own language A hundred curses on the swine-eaters who know neither decency nor civility Make room the pack of you he said advancing to the door But his former friend interposed his sturdy bulk and opposed his leaving the house and when Robin oig attempted to make his way by force he hit him down on the floor with as much ease as a boy bowls down a 9 pen. a Ring a ring was now shouted until the dark rafters and the hams that hung on them Trembled again and the very platters on the bink clattered against each other Well done Harry give it him home Harry take care of him now. He sees his own blood Such were the exclamations while the Highlander starting from the ground all his coldness and caution lost in frantic rage Sprung at his antagonist with the fury the activity and the vindictive purpose of an incensed tiger cat But when could rage encounter science and temper Robin oig again went down in the unequal contest and as the blow was necessarily a severe one He lay motionless on the floor of the kitchen The landlady ran to offer some aid, but mr. Fleece would not permit her to approach Let him alone he said he'll come to within time he has not got half his broth yet He has got all I mean to give him though said his antagonist whose heart began to relent towards his old associate I would rather by half give the rest to yourself mr Fleece bumpkin for you pretend to know a thing or two and Robin had not art enough even to peel before setting to, But fought with his plaid dangling about him stand up Robin my man all friends now And let me hear the man that will speak a word against you or your country for your sake robin oig was still under the domination of his passion and eager to renew the onset but being withheld on the one side by the peacemaking dame heskett and on the other aware that wakefield no longer meant to renew the combat his fury sunk into gloomy sullenness come come never grudge so much at it man said the brave spirited englishman with the placability of his country shake hands and we will be better friends than ever friends exclaimed robin oig with strong emphasis friends never look to yourself harry Wackfelt. then the curse of cromwell on your proud scots stomach as the man says in the play and you may do your worst and be damned For one man can say nothing more to another after a tussle than that he is sorry for it on these terms the friends parted Robin oig drew out in silence a piece of money threw it on the table and then left the alehouse but turning at the door He shook his hand at wakefield pointing with his forefinger upwards in a manner which might imply either a threat or a caution he then disappeared in the moonlight some words passed after his departure between the bailiff who piqued himself on being a little of a bully and harry wakefield who with generous inconsistency was now not indisposed to begin a new combat in defence of robin oig's reputation although he could not use his daddies like an Englishman, as it did not come natural to him. But Dame Heskett prevented this second quarrel from coming to a head by her peremptory interference. There should be no more fighting in her house, she said. There had been too much already. And you, Mr. Wakefield, may live to learn, she added, what it is to make a deadly enemy out of a good friend. Poor dame! Robin Oig is an honest fellow, and will never keep malice. Do not trust to that. You Do not know the dour temper of the scots though you have dealt with them so often I Have a right to know them my mother being a scot And
1: so is well seen on her daughter said Ralph Heskett End of section 2 International short stories volume 2 English stories
0: This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Tig Hines International Short Stories, Volume 2 English Stories, Edited by William Patton Section 3 The Two Drovers by Sir Walter Scott Part 3 This nuptial sarcasm gave the discourse another turn. Fresh customers entered the taproom or kitchen, and others left it. The conversation turned on the expected markets and the reports of prices from different parts both of Scotland and England Treaties were commenced and Harry Wakefield was lucky enough to find a chap for part of his drove at a very Considerable profit an event of consequence more than sufficient to blot out all remembrances of the unpleasant scuffle in the earlier part of the day but there remained one party from whose mind that recollection could not have been wiped away by the possession of every head of cattle betwixt Esk and Eden. This was Robin Oig McCombick. That I should have had no weapon, he said, and for the first time in my life, blighted be
1: the tongue that bids the Highlander part with the dirk. The dirk, eh? The English blood? My Moom's word? When did her word fall to the ground?
0: The recollection of the fatal prophecy confirmed the deadly intention, which instantly sprang up in his mind Ah, Morrison cannot be many miles behind and if it were an hundred what then? His impetuous spirit had now a fixed purpose and motive of action And he turned the light foot of his country towards the wilds through which he knew by mr Iraby's report that Morrison was advancing His mind was wholly engrossed by the sense of injury injury sustained from a friend and by the desire of vengeance on one whom he now accounted his most bitter enemy. The treasured ideas of self importance and self opinion, of ideal birth and quality, had become more precious to him, like the hoard to the miser, because he could only enjoy them in secret. But that hoard was pillaged. The idols which he had secretly worshipped had been desecrated and profane. Insulted, abused, and beaten, he was no longer worthy, in his own opinion of the name he bore or the lineage which he belonged to. Nothing was left to him, nothing but revenge. And as the reflection added a galling spur to every step, he determined it should be as sudden and signal as the offence. When Robin Oig left the door of the alehouse, seven or eight English miles at least lay betwixt Morrison and him. The advance of the former was slow, limited by the sluggish pace of his cattle the last left behind him stubble-field and hedgerow, crag and dark heath, all glittering with frost-rime in the broad November moonlight, at the rate of six miles an hour. And now the distant lowing of Morrison's cattle is heard, and now they are seen creeping like moles in size and slowness of motion on the broad face of the moor, and now he meets them, passes them, and stops their conductor. May good betide us, said the Southlander. Is it you Robin McCombick or your Wraith it is Robin Oig McCombick answered the Highlander and it is not But never mind that but be given me the skein, do What are you for back to the Highlands the devil have yon selt off all before the fair this beats all for quick markets I have not sold. I am NOT going north Maybe I will never go north again Give me back my dark Hugh Morrison or there will be words between us indeed robin i'll be better advised before i get back to you it is a one-chancy weapon in a highland man's hand and i am thinking you will be about some barns breaking Tut tut let me have my weapon said robin oig impatiently holy and fairly said his well-meaning friend i'll tell you what will do better than these dorking doings ye ken highlander and lowlander and border men are all a man's bairns when you're over the scots dyke see the eskdale clans and fighting charlie of lissadell and the lockerby lads and the four dandies of lustreuther and a ween mere grey plaids are coming up behind and if you are round there is the hand of a manly morrison we'll see you right it if carlyle and stanwix baith took up the feud to tell you the truth said robin oick desirous of eluding the suspicions of his friend
1: i have enlisted with a party of the black watch and must
0: march off to-morrow morning Enlisted were you mad or drunk you must buy yourself off. I can lend you 20 notes and 20 to that if the drove sell I Thank you. Thank ye, Hughie But I go with goodwill to the gate that I am going so the dark the dark There it is for you then since less moona serve, but think on what I was saying Ways me it'll be ser news for the blaze of Balquither that Robin oig me should a run an ill gate and taken on Ill news in Balquither indeed, echoed poor Robin. But God speed you, Hughie, and send you good markets. Ye winna meet with Robin Oig again, either at Triest or Fair. So saying, he shook hastily the hand of his acquaintance, and set out in the direction from which he had advanced, with a spirit of his former pace. There's something wrong with the lad, muttered the Morrison to himself. But we will maybe see better into it in the morn's morning. But long ere the morning dawned the catastrophe of our tale had taken place It was two hours after the affray had happened and it was totally forgotten by almost everyone when Robin Oig returned to Heskett's Inn The place was filled at once by various sorts of men with noises corresponding to their character There were the grave low sounds of men engaged in busy traffic with the tough the song and the riotous jests of those Who had nothing to do but to enjoy themselves Among the last was Harry Wakefield who amidst a grinning group of smock-frocks Hobnailed shoes and jolly English physiognomies was trolling forth the old ditty What though my name be Roger who drives the plough and cart? When he was interrupted by a well-known voice saying in a high and stern voice marked by the sharp Highland accent Harry Wakefield if you be a man stand up. What is the matter? What is it? The guests demanded of each other. It's only a damned Scotsman, said Fleece Bumpkin, who was by this time very drunk, whom Harry Wakefield helped to his broth to-day, who is now come to have
1: his cowled kale het again. Harry Wakefield,
0: repeated the same ominous summons, stand up, if you be a man. There is something in the tone of deep and concentrated passion which attracts attention and imposes awe, even by the very sound. The guests shrunk back on every side and gazed at the Highlander as he stood in the middle of them his brows bent and his features rigid with resolution I will stand up with all my heart Robin my boy But it shall be to shake hands with you and drink down all unkindness It is not the fault of your heart man, but you don't know how to clench your hands By this time he stood opposite to his antagonist his open and unsuspecting look strangely contrasted with a stern purpose which gleamed wild, dark, and vindictive in the eyes of the Highlander, Tis not thy fault, man, that not having the luck to be an Englishman, thou canst not fight more than a schoolgirl. I can fight, answered Robin Oig sternly but calmly, and you shall know it. You, Harry
1: Wackfelt, showed me to-day how the Saxon churls fight. I show you now how the Highland dunny Wassel fights.
0: He seconded the word with the action and plunged the dagger which he suddenly displayed, into the broad chest of the English yeoman with such fatal certainty and force that the hilt made a hollow sound against the breastbone, and the double-edged point split the very heart of his victim. Harry Wakefield fell and expired with a single groan. His assassin next seized the bailiff by the collar, and offered the bloody poniard to his throat, whilst dread and surprise rendered the man incapable of defence. It were very just to lay you beside him, he said, but the blood of a base pickthank shall never mix on my father's dirk with that of a brave man. As he spoke, he cast the man from him with so much force that he fell on the floor, while Robin, with his other hand, threw the fatal weapon into the blazing turf fire. There, he said, take me who likes, and let fire cleanse blood if it can. The cause of astonishment still continuing. Robin oig asked for a peace officer and a constable having stepped out. He surrendered himself to his custody a bloody night's work you have made of it said the constable Your own fault said the Highlander had you kept his hands off me two hours since he would have been now as well and merry as he was two minutes since It must be sorely answered said the peace officer Never do you mind that death pays all debts
1: it will pay that too
0: the horror of the bystanders began now to give way to indignation and the sight of a favorite companion murdered in the midst of them the Provocation being in their opinion so utterly inadequate to the excess of vengeance might have induced them to kill the perpetrator of the deed even upon the very spot the constable however did his duty on this occasion and with the assistance of some of the more reasonable persons present procured horses to guard the prisoner to carlisle To abide his doom at the next assizes. While the escort was preparing, the prisoner neither expressed the least interest nor attempted the slightest reply. Only, before he was carried from the fatal apartment, he desired to look at the dead body, which, raised from the floor, had been deposited upon the large table at the head of which Harry Wakefield had presided but a few minutes before, full of life, vigour, and animation, until the surgeon should examine the mortal wound. The face of the corpse was decently covered with a napkin. To the surprise and horror of the bystanders, which displayed itself in a general "Ah!" <sighs> drawn through clenched teeth and half-shut lips, Robin Oig removed the cloth, and gazed with a mournful but steady eye on the lifeless visage, which had been so lately animated, that the smile of good-humoured confidence in his own strength, of conciliation at once and contempt towards his enemy, still curled his lip. While those present expected that the wound, which had so lately flooded the apartment with gore, would send forth fresh streams at the touch of the homicide, Robin Oig replaced the covering with a brief exclamation. He was a pretty man. My story is nearly ended. The unfortunate Highlander stood his trial at Carlisle. I was myself present, and as a young Scottish lawyer, or barrister at least. And Reputed a man of some quality the politeness of the sheriff of Cumberland offered me a place on the bench the facts of the case were proved in the manner I have related them and Whatever might be at first the prejudice of the audience against a crime so un-english as that of assassination from revenge Yet when the rooted national prejudices of the prisoner had been explained which made him consider himself as stained with indelible dishonor when subjected to personal violence When his previous patience moderation and endurance were considered the generosity of the English audience was inclined to regard his crime as The wayward aberration of a false idea of honor rather than as flowing from a heart naturally savage or perverted by habitual vice I Shall never forget the charge of the venerable judge to the jury Although not at that time liable to be much affected either by that which was eloquent or pathetic We have had He said, in the previous part of our duty, alluding to some former trials, to discuss crimes which infer disgust and abhorrence while they call down the well merited vengeance of the law. It is now our still more melancholy task to apply its salutary, though severe, enactments to a case of a very singular character, in which the crime, for crime it is, and a deep one, arose less out of the malevolence of the heart. Than The error of the understanding less from any idea of committing wrong than from an unhappily perverted notion of that which is right Here we have two men highly esteemed It has been stated in their rank of life and attached it seems to each other as friends One of whose lives has been already sacrificed to a punctilio And the other is about to prove the vengeance of the offended laws and yet both may claim our commiseration at least as men acting in ignorance of each other's national prejudices and unhappily misguided rather than voluntarily erring from the path of right conduct in the original cause of the misunderstanding we must in justice give the right to the prisoner at the bar he had acquired possession of the enclosure which was the object of competition by a legal contract with the proprietor mr iraby and yet when accosted with reproaches undeserved in themselves and galling doubtless to a temper at least sufficiently susceptible of passion, he offered, notwithstanding, to yield up half his acquisition for the sake of peace and good neighbourhood, and his amical proposal was rejected with scorn. Then follows the scene at Mr. Hesket the Publican's, and you will observe how the stranger was treated by the deceased, and, I am sorry to observe, by those around, who seemed to have urged him in a manner which was aggravating in the highest degree. While he asked for peace and composition and offered submission to a magistrate or to a mutual arbiter The prisoner was insulted by the whole company who seemed on this occasion to have forgotten the national maxim of fair play And while attempting to escape from the place in peace he was intercepted struck down and beaten to the effusion of his blood gentlemen of the jury it was with some impatience that I heard my learned brother Who opened the case for the crown gave an unfavourable turn to the prisoner's conduct on this occasion He said the prisoner was afraid to encounter his antagonist in fair fight or to submit to the laws of the ring and that Therefore like a cowardly Italian he had recourse to his fatal stiletto to murder the man whom he dared not meet in manly encounter I observed the prisoner shrink from this part of the accusation with the abhorrence natural to a brave man And as I would wish to make my words impressive when I point his real crime, I must secure his opinion of my impartiality by rebutting everything that seems to me a false accusation. There can be no doubt that the prisoner is a man of resolution, too much resolution. I wish to heaven that he had less, or rather that he had had a better education to regulate it. Gentlemen, as to the laws my brother talks of, they may be known in the bull-ring, or the bear-garden, or the cock-pit. But they are not known here, or if they should be so far admitted as furnishing a species of proof that no malice was intended in this sort of combat, from which fatal accidents do sometimes arise, it can only be admitted when both parties are in part casu, equally acquainted with, and equally willing to refer themselves to that species of arbitrament. But it will be contended that a man of superior rank and education is to be subjected, or is obliged to subject himself, to this course of brutal strife. Perhaps in opposition to a younger, stronger, or more skilful opponent? Certainly, even the pugilistic code, if founded upon the fair play of merry old England, as my brother alleges it to be, can contain nothing so preposterous. And, gentlemen of the jury, if the laws support an English gentleman wearing, we will suppose, his sword in defending himself by force against a violent personal aggression of the nature offered to this prisoner, They will not less protect a foreigner and a stranger involved in the same unpleasing circumstances if therefore gentlemen of the jury When thus pressed by a viz major the object of obloquy to a whole company and of direct violence from one at least And as he might reasonably apprehend from more the panel had produced the weapon which his countrymen as we are informed generally carry about their persons and the same unhappy circumstance had ensued which you have heard detailed in evidence I could not in my conscience have asked you to form a verdict of murder. The prisoner's personal defence might indeed, even in that case, have gone more or less beyond the modramen inculpitae tutelar spoken of by lawyers, but the punishment incurred would have been that of manslaughter, not of murder. I beg leave to add that I should have thought this milder species of charge was demanded in the case supposed, notwithstanding the statute of James I, Cap 8. Which takes the case of slaughter by stabbing with a short weapon even without malice prepense out of the benefit of clergy For this statute of stabbing as it is termed arose out of a temporary cause And as the real guilt is the same whether the slaughter be committed by the dagger or by sword or pistol The benignity of the modern law places them all on the same or nearly the same footing but gentlemen of the jury the Pinch of the case lies in the interval of two hours interposed betwixt the reception of the injury and the fatal retaliation in the heat of a fray and shod melee, law Compassionating the infirmities of humanity makes allowance for the passions which rule such a stormy moment For the sense of present pain for the apprehension of further injury for the difficulty of ascertaining with due accuracy The precise degree of violence which is necessary to protect the person of the individual without annoying or injuring the assailant more than is absolutely necessary But the time necessary to walk twelve miles However speedily performed was an interval sufficient for the prisoner to have recollected himself and the violence with which he carried his purpose into effect With so many circumstances of deliberate determination could neither be induced by the passion of anger nor that of fear It was the purpose and the act of predetermined revenge for which law neither can will nor ought to have any sympathy or allowance It is true. We may repeat to ourselves in alleviation of this poor man's unhappy action that his case is a very peculiar one the country which he inhabits was in the days of many now alive Inaccessible to the laws not only of England which have not even yet penetrated thither but to those to which our neighbors of Scotland are subjected and which must be supposed to be, and no doubt actually are, founded upon the general principles of justice and equity which pervade every civilized country. Amongst their mountains, as among the North American Indians, the various tribes were wont to make war upon each other, so that each man was obliged to go armed for his own protection. These men, from the ideas which they entertained of their own descent and of their own consequence, Regarded themselves as so many cavaliers or men-at-arms rather than as the peasantry of a peaceful country Those laws of the ring as my brother terms them were unknown to a race of warlike mountaineers That decision of quarrels by no other weapons than those which nature has given every man Must to them have seemed as vulgar and preposterous as to the noblesse of France Revenge on the other hand must have been as familiar to their habits of society As to those of the Cherokees or Mohawks It is indeed as described by Bacon at bottom a kind of wild untutored justice For the fear of retaliation must withhold the hands of the oppressor where there is no regular law to check daring violence but although this may be granted and though we may allow that such having been the case of the highlands in the days of the prisoners fathers many of the opinions and sentiments must still continue to influence the present generation it cannot and ought not, even in this most painful case, to alter the administration of the law, either in your hands, gentlemen of the jury, or in mine. The first object of civilization is to place the general protection of the law, equally administered, in the room of that wild justice which every man cut and carved for himself, according to the length of his sword and the strength of his arm. The law says to the subjects, With a voice only inferior to that of the deity, vengeance is mine. The instant that there is time for passion to cool and reason to interpose, an injured party must become aware that the law assumes the exclusive cognizance of the right and wrong betwixt the parties, and opposes her inviolable buckler to every attempt of the private party to right himself. I repeat that this unhappy man ought personally to be the object rather of our pity than our abhorrence, for he failed in his ignorance and from mistaken notions of honour. But his crime is less that of murder, gentlemen, and in your high and important office it is your duty so to find. Englishmen have their angry passions as well as Scots, and should this man's actions remain unpunished, you may unsheath, under various pretenses, a thousand daggers betwixt the land's end and the Orkneys. The venerable judge thus ended what to judge by his apparent emotion and by the tears which filled his eyes Was really a painful task The jury according to his instructions brought in a verdict of guilty and Robin o'ig Alias MacGregor was sentenced to death and left for execution which took place accordingly he met his fate with great firmness and acknowledged the justice of his sentence but he repelled indignantly the observations of those who accused him of attacking an unarmed man i give a life for the life i took he said and what can i do more end of section three
2: chapter four of international short stories volume two english stories this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org International short stories volume 2 English stories edited by William Patton Chapter 4 mr. Deuce ace diamond cut diamond by William Thackeray The name of my next master was, if possible, still more elegant and euphonious than that of my first. I now found myself body-servant to the Honorable Algernon Percy Deuceace, youngest and fifth son of the Earl of Crabs. Algernon was a barrister, that is, he lived in Pump Court Temple, a vulgar neighborhood which perhaps my readers don't know. Suffice to say it's on the confines of the city and the chosen abode of the lawyers of this metropolis When I say that mr. Ducey's was a barrister I don't mean that he went sessions or surcoats as they call him But simply that he kept chambers lived in pump court and looked out for a commissionership or a Revision ship or any other place that the Whig government could give him His father was a Whig peer as the laundress told me and had been a Tory peer. The fact is, his lordship was so poor that he would be anything or nothing to get provisions for his sons and an income for himself. I fancy that he allowed Algernon two hundred a year, and it would have been a very comfortable maintenance, only he never paid him. However, the young gentleman was a gentleman, and no mistake. He got his allowance of nothing a year. And spent it in the most honorable and fashionable manner. He kept a cab. He went to holmacks and crockfuds. He moved in the most exquisite circles. And troubled the law boss very little, I can tell you. Those fashionable gents have ways of getting money which common people don't understand. Though he only had a third floor in Pump Court, he lived as if he had the wealth of Croesus. The ten-pound notes flew about as common as haypence. Claret and champagne was at his house as vulgar as gin and very glad I was to be sure to be a valet to a Zion of the nobility Deuce ace had in his sitting room a large picture on a sheet of paper The names of his family was wrote on it It was wrote in the shape of a tree a growing out of a man in armor's stomach and the names were on little plates among the boughs the picture said that the deuce aces came into England in the year 1066 along with William Conker My master called it his pedigree I do believe it was because he had this picture and because he was the honorable deuce Ace, That he managed to live as he did if he had been a common man you'd have said that he was no better than a swindler It's only rank and birth that can warrant such singularities as my master showed For it's no use disguising it the Honorable Algernon was a gambler For a man of vulgar family. It's the worst trade that can be For a man of common feelings of honesty this profession is quite impossible But for a real thoroughbred gentleman. It's the easiest and most profitable line he can take It may perhaps appear curious that such a fashionable man should live in the temple But it must be recollected that it's not only lawyers who live in what's called the inns of court Many bachelors who have nothing to do with law have here their lodgings and many sham Barristers who never put on a wig and gown twice in their lives Keep apartments in the temple instead of Bond Street Piccadilly or other fashionable places For instance on our staircase so these houses are called There was eight sets of chamberses and only three lawyers These was bottom-floor Screwson, hewson and juicen attorneys first floor mr.. Sergeant Flabber opposite mr.. Counselor bruffy and Second pair mr. Hagerstony an irish counselor practicing at the old bailey and likewise what they call reporter to the morning post newspaper Opposite him was wrote mr.. Richard Blewitt, and on the third floor with my master lived one mr.. Dawkins this young fellow was a newcomer into the temple, and unlucky it was for him too. he'd better have never been born for it's my firm opinion that the temple ruined him, that is, with the help of my master and Mr. Dick blewett, as you shall hear, Mr. Dawkins, as I was gave to understand by his young man, had just left the University of Oxford and had a pretty little form of his own, six thousand pound or so in the stocks. He was just of age, an orphan who had lost his father and mother, and, having distinguished himself at college where he gained several prizes, was come to town to push his form and study the barrister's business. Not being of a very high family himself, indeed, I have heard say his father was a cheesemonger or something of that low sort. Dawkins was glad to find his old Oxford friend, Mr. blewett. Younger son to rich Squire Blewett of Leicestershire and to take rooms so near him Now though there was a considerable intimacy between me and mr. Blewett's gentlemen There was scarcely any betwixt our masters mine being too much of the aristocracy to associate with one of mr. Blewett's sort Blewett was what they call a betting man He went regular to tattlesles kept a pony wore a white hat A Bluebeard's eye handkerchief and a cutaway coat in his manners He was the very contrary of my master who was a slim elegant man as ever I see he had very white hands rather a sallow face with sharp dark eyes and Small whiskers neatly trimmed and as black as Warren's jet He spoke very low and soft He seemed to be watching the person with whom he was in conversation and always flattered everybody as for Blewett, he was quite another sort. He was always swearing, singing, and slapping people on the back, as hearty and as familiar as possible. He seemed a merry, careless, honest creature, whom one would trust with life and soul. So thought Dawkins, at least, who, though a quiet young man, fond of his books, novels, Byron's poems, flute playing, and such scientific amusements. Grew hand in glove with honest Dick Bluett, and soon after with my master, the honorable Algernon. Poor doll! He thought he was making good connections and real friends. He had fallen in with a couple of the most atrocious swindlers that ever lived. Before Mr. Dawkins's arrival in our house, Mr. Ducey's had barely condescended to speak to Mr. Bluett. It was only about a month after that circumstance that my master all of a sudden grew very friendly with him The reason was pretty clear Deuce ace wanted him Dawkins had not been an hour in master's company before he knew that he had a pigeon to pluck Blewett knew this too and being very fond of pigeon intended to keep this one entirely to himself it was amusing to see the honorable Algernon maneuvering to get this poor bird out of Blewett's claws, who thought he had it safe. In fact, he'd brought Dawkins to these chambers for that very purpose, thinking to have him under his eye and strip him at leisure. My master very soon found out what was Mr. Blewett's game. Gamblers know gamblers, if not by instinct, at least by reputation. And Though mr. Blewett moved in a much lower sphere than mr. Deuce ace. They knew each other's dealings and characters perfectly well Charles you scoundrel, says Deuce ace to me one day. He always spoke in that kind of way Who is this person who has taken the opposite chambers and plays the flute so industriously? It's mr. Dawkins a rich young gentleman from Oxford and a great friend of mr. Blewett's sir says I they seemed to live in each other's rooms. Master said nothing, but he grinned. My eye, he did grin. Not the foul fiend himself could sneer more satanically. I knew what he meant. Imprimish, a man who plays the flute is a simpleton. Secondly, Mister Blewett is a rascal. Third mo, when a rascal and a simpleton is always together and when the simpleton is rich one knows pretty well what will come of it i was but a lad in them days but i knew what was what as well as my master it's not gentlemen only that's up to snuff law bless us there was four of us on this staircase four as nice young men as you ever see mr bruffy's young man mr dawkins's mr bluett's and me and we knew what our masters was about as well as they did theirselves for instance i can say this for myself there wasn't a paper in deuce ace's desk or drawer not a bill a note or memorandum which i hadn't read as well as he with bluett's it was the same me and his young man used to read em all there wasn't a bottle of wine that we didn't get a glass nor a pound of sugar that we didn't have some lumps of it we had keys to all the cupboards we peeped into all the letters that came and went we pored over all the bill-files we'd the best pickings out of the dinners the livers of the fowls the forcemeat balls out of the soup the eggs from the salad as for the coals and candles we left them to the laundresses you may call this robbery nonsense it's only our right a servant's perquisites is as sacred as the laws of england well the long and short of it is this Richard blew Esquire was situated as follows He'd an income of three hundred a year from his father Out of this he had to pay one hundred and ninety for money borrowed by him at college Seventy for chambers Seventy more for his horse eighty for his servant on board wages and about 350 for a separate establishment in the Regency Park Besides this his pocket money say a hundred his eatin drinkin and wine merchants bill about two hundred more So that you see he laid by a pretty handsome sum at the end of the year My master was different and being a more fashionable man than mr. B. In course he owed a deal more money there was first account contrary at crockford's three thousand seven hundred and eleven pounds bills of exchange and ious but he didn't pay these in most cases 4963 pounds 21 tailors bills and all 1306 pounds 11 shillings and 9 pence three hoss dealers due 402 pounds two coach builder 506 pounds bills contracted at cambridge 2193 pounds six shillings and eight pence sundries nine hundred and eighty seven pounds six shillings total fourteen thousand and sixty nine pounds eight shillings and five pence i give this as a curiosity people don't know how in many cases fashionable life is carried on and to know even what a real gentleman owes is something instructive and agreeable but to my tale the very day after my master had made the inquiries concerning Mr. Dawkins, which I have mentioned already, he met Mr. blewett on the stairs and beautiful it was to see how this gentleman, who had before been almost cut by my master, was now received by him. One of the sweetest smiles I ever saw was now visible on Mr. Duce's countenance. He held out his hand covered with a white kid glove, and said. In the most friendly tone of voice possible What mr. Blewett it's an age since we met what a shame that such near neighbors should see each other so seldom Mr.. Blewett who was standing at his door in a pea-green dressing gown smoking a cigar and singing a hunting chorus looked surprised flattered and then suspicious Why yes says he it is mr. Ducey's a long time not, I think, since we dined at Sir George Hockey's. By the way, what an evening that was, say hey, Mr. Blewett? What wine, what capital songs. I recollect your May Day in the morning. Cuss me the best comic song I ever heard. I was speaking to the Duke of Doncaster about it only yesterday. You know the Duke, I think. Mr. Blewett said quite surly, No, I don't. Not know him? cries the master. Why hang it, blewett? He knows you as every sporting man in England does, I should think. why, man, your good things are in everybody's mouth at Newmarket, and so Master went on chaffing Mr. blewett, that gentleman at first answered him quite short and angry, but after a little more flummery, he grew as pleased as possible, took in all Deuce Ace's flattery, and believed all his lies. At last, the door shut. And they both went into mr. Blewett's chambers together Of course I can't say what passed there But in an hour master came up to his own room as yellow as mustard and smelling sadly of bacco smoke I never seen any gentleman more than he was he'd been smoking cigars along with Blewett I said nothing in course though. I'd often heard him express his horror of Bacca and knew very well He would as soon swallow poison as smoke but He wasn't a chap to do a thing without a reason if he'd been smoking. I warrant. He had smoked to some purpose. I Didn't hear the conversation between them, but mr Blewett's man did it was well mr. Blewett what capital cigars have you one for a friend to smoke the old Fox It wasn't only the cigars. He was smoking walk in says mr. Blewett and then they began a chafin' together Master very anxious about the young gentleman who had come to live in our chambers, Mr Dawkins, and always coming back to that subject, saying that people on the same staircase ought to be friendly. How glad he'd be for his part to know Mr Dick Blewett, and any friend of his, and so on. Mr Dick House, however, seemed quite aware of the trap laid for him. I really don't know this Dawkins, says he. He's a cheesemonger's son, I hear. And Though I've exchanged visits with him. I don't intend to continue the acquaintance not wishing to associate with that kind of people So they went on master fishing and mr. Blewett not wishing to take the hook at no price Confound the vulgar thief muttered my master as he was laying on his Sophie after being so very ill I've poisoned myself with his infernal tobacco, and he has foiled me the cursed swindling boar he thinks he'll ruin this poor cheesemonger does he I'll step in and warn him I Thought I should bust a laughin' when he talked in this style. I knew very well what his warning meant Lock the stable door, but stealin' the hoss first Next day his stratagem for becoming acquainted with mr. Dawkins he executed and very pretty it was Besides poetry and the flute mr. Dawkins I must tell you had some other partialities Namely he was very fond of good eating and drinkin'. After dawdling over his music and books all day This young gentleman used to sally out of evenings dine sumptuously at a tavern drinking all sorts of wine along with his friend Mr.. Blewett He was a quiet young fellow enough at first, but it was mr.. B who for his own purposes no doubt Had got him into this kind of life Well, I needn't say that he who eats a fine dinner and drinks too much overnight Wants a bottle of soda water and a grill perhaps in the morning such was mr dawkins's case and regular almost as 12 o'clock came the waiter from mr dick's coffee house was to be seen on our staircase bringing up mr d's hot breakfast no man would have thought there was anything in such a trifling circumstance master did though and pounced upon it like a cock on a barleycorn he sent me out to Mr. Morell's in Piccadilly for what's called a Strasbourg pie, in French a patty de gras. He takes a card and nails it on the outside case. Patty de foie gras come generally in a round wooden box like a drum, and what do you think he writes on it? Why, as follows: quote, For the Honorable Algernon Percy ace etc., etc., etc. With Prince Talleyrand's compliments. Quote. Prince Talleyrand's compliments, indeed. I laugh when I think of it. Still, the old serpent, he was a serpent, that Doucey's, and no mistake. Well, by a most extraordinary piece of ill luck, the next day, punctually as Mister Dawkins's breakfast was coming up the stairs, Mister Algernon Percy deuceace was going down. He was as gay as a lark, humming an opera tune. And twisting round his head, his heavy gold-headed cane, down he went very fast, and by a most unlucky accident struck his cane against the waiter's tray, and away went Mister Dawkins's grill, cayenne, ketchup, soda water, and all. I can't think how my master should have chose such an exact time. To be sure, his window looked upon the court, and he could see every one who came into our door. As soon as the accident had took place master was in such a rage as to be sure no man ever was in before He swore at the waiter in the most dreadful way He threatened him with his stick and it was only when he see that the waiter was rather a bigger man than himself That he was in the least pacified He returned to his own chambers and John the waiter went off for more grill to Dixie's coffee house this is a most unlucky accident to be sure charles says master to me after a few minutes pause during which he had been and wrote a note put it in an envelope and sealed it with his big seal of arms but stay a thought strikes me take this note to mr dawkins and that pie you brought yesterday and hark ye you scoundrel if you say where you got it i will break every bone in your skin these kind of promises were among the few which i knew him to keep and as i loved both my skin and my bones i carried the note and of course said nothing waiting in mr dawkins's chambers for a few minutes i returned to my master with an answer i may as well give both of these documents of which i happen to have taken copies one the Honorable A.P. Deuce Ace to T.S. Dawkins Esquire Temple Tuesday Mr. Deuce Ace presents his compliments to mr. Dawkins and begs at the same time to offer his most sincere Apologies and regrets for the accident which has just taken place May mr. Deuce Ace be allowed to take a neighbor's privilege and to remedy the evil he has occasioned to the best of his power if Mr Dawkins will do him the favour to partake of the contents of the accompanying case from Strasbourg direct and the gift of a friend on whose taste as a gourmand Mr Dawkins may rely perhaps he will find that it is not a bad substitute for the pâté which Mr Deuceace's awkwardness destroyed it will also Mr Deuceace is sure be no small gratification to the original donor of the plat when he learns that it has fallen into the hands of so celebrated a bon vivant as mr dawkins t s dawkins esq etc 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 two from t s dawkins esq to the honorable a p deuceace mr thomas smith dawkins presents his grateful compliments to the honorable mr deuceace and accepts with the greatest pleasure mr deuceace's generous proffer it would be one of the happiest moments of Mr Smith Dawkins' life if the honorable Mr Duc would extend his generosity still further and condescend to partake of the repast which his munificent politeness has furnished. Temple Tuesday Many and many a time, I say, have I grinned over these letters, which I had wrote from the original by Mr Bruffy's copying clerk. Deuce's flam about Prince Talleyram was perfectly successful. I saw young Dawkins blush with delight as he read the note and tore up four or five sheets before he composed the answer to it Which was as you read above and wrote in a hand quite trembling with pleasure If you could have but seen the look of triumph in deuce aces wicked black eyes when he read the note I Never see a demon yet, but I can fancy one a holding a writhing soul on his pitchfrock and smiling like deuce ace he dressed himself in his very best clothes and in he went after sending me over to say that he would accept with pleasure mr Dawkins's invite The pie was cut up and a most friendly conversation begun betwixt the two gentlemen Ducey's was quite captivating He spoke to mr. Dawkins in the most respectful and flattering manner agreed in everything. He said praised his taste his furniture his coat His classic knowledge and his playing on the flute You'd have thought to hear him that such a polygon of excellence as mr. Dawkins did not breathe that such a modest sincere Honorable gentleman as do was to be seen nowhere except in pump court Poor Daw was completely taken in my master said he'd introduce him to the Duke of Doncaster And heaven knows how many knobs more till Dawkins was quite intoxicated with pleasure I know as a fact, and it pretty well shows the young gentleman's character, that he went that very day and ordered two new coats on purpose to be introduced to the Lord's Inn. But the best joke of all was at last, singing, swaggering, and swearing. Up the stairs came Mr. Dick Blewett. He flung open Mr. Dawkins's door, shouting out, "Daw, my old buck, how are you?" When all of a sudden he sees Mr. Doucey's. His jaw dropped he turned chalky white and then burning red and looked as if a straw would knock him down My dear mr. Blewett says my master smiling and offering his hand How glad I am to see you mr. Dawkins, and I were just talking about your pony pray sit down Blewett did and now was the question who should sit the other out, but law bless you mr. Blewett was no match for my master all The time he was fidgety silent and sulky on the contrary master was charming I never heard such a flow of conversation or so many witticisms as he uttered at last completely beat Mr.. Blewett took his leave That instant master followed him and passing his arm through that of mr.. Dick Led him into our chambers and began talking to him in the most affable and affectionate manner But dick was too angry to listen at last when master was telling him some long story about the Duke of Doncaster blew it bust out a Plague on the Duke of Doncaster come come mr. Deuce ace Don't you be running your rigs upon me? I ain't the man to be bamboozled by long-winded stories about Dukes and Duchesses You think I don't know you every man knows you and your line of country? Yes, you're after young Dawkins there and think to pluck him, but you shan't no, by blank, you shan't. The reader must recollect that the oaths which interspersed Mr. B's conversation I have left out. Well, after he'd fired a volley of them, Mr. deucey spoke as cool and slow as possible. Hark ye blew it. I know you to be one of the most infernal thieves and scoundrels unhung. If you attempt to hector with me, I will cane you. If you want more, I'll shoot you. If you meddle between me and Dawkins, I'll do both. I Know your whole life you miserable swindler and coward. I know you have already won two hundred pounds of this lad and want all I will have half or you never shall have a penny It's quite true that master knew things, but how was the wonder I? Couldn't see mr. B's face during this dialogue being on the wrong side of the door But There was a considerable pause after those compliments had passed between the two gentlemen One walking up and down the room t'other angry and stupid sitting down and stamping with his foot Now listen to this mr. Blewett continues master at last if you're quiet You shall have half this fellow's money But venture to win a shilling from him in my absence or without my consent and you do it at your peril well well mr Duce, cries dick it's very hard and i must say not fair the game was of my starting and you've no right to interfere with my friend mr blewett you are a fool you professed yesterday not to know this man and i was obliged to find him out for myself i should like to know by what law of honor i'm bound to give him up to you it was charming to hear this pair of rascals talking about honor I Declare I could have found it in my heart to warn young Dawkins of the precious way in which these chaps were going to serve him But if they didn't know what honor was I did and never never did I tell tales about my masters when in their service Out in course the obligation is no longer binding Well the next day there was a grand dinner at our chambers white soup turbot and lobster sauce saddle of scotch mutton grouse and maroni Wine, champagne, hock, Madeira, a bottle of port, and ever so many of claret. The company present was three, namely the Honorable A. P. Deuceace, R. Blewett, and Mister Dawkins, Esquires. My eye! How we gentlemen in the kitchen did enjoy it! Mister Blewett's man ate so much grouse when it was brought out of the parlor that I really thought he would be sick. Mr. Dawkins's gentleman, who was only about thirteen years of age, grew so ill with maroni and plum puddin, so to be obliged to take several of Mr. D's pills, which one half killed him. But this is all promiscuous. I ain't talking of the servants now, but the masters. Would you believe it? After dinner, and perhaps eight bottles of wine between the three, the gentleman sat down to arty. It's a game where only two plays, and where, in course, when there's only three, one looks on. First, they played crown points, and a pound the bet. At this game, they were wonderful equal, and about supper time, when grilled ham, more champagne, deviled biscuits, and other things was brought in, the play stood thus. Mr. Dawkins had won two pounds, Mr. Blewett thirty shillings, the honorable Mr. Ducey's having lost three pounds ten shillings After the doula and the champagne the play was a little higher now. It was pound points and five pound the bet I Thought to be sure after hearing the compliments between mr.. Blewett and master in the morning that now poor Dawkins time was come not so Dawkins won always Mr.. B betting on his play and giving him the very best of advice at the end of the evening which was about five o'clock the next morning they stopped master was counting up the score on a card Blewett says he i've been unlucky i owe you lemme see yes five and forty pounds five and forty says blewitt and no mistake i will give you a cheque says the honorable gentleman oh don't mention it my dear sir but Master got a great sheet of paper and drew him a cheque on Messrs. Pump, Algent, and Company, his bankers. Now, says Master, I've got to settle with you, my dear Mr. Dawkins. If you had backed your luck, I should have owed you a very handsome sum of money. Voyons. Thirteen points at a pound, it is easy to calculate, and drawing out his purse, he clinked over the table thirteen golden sovereigns, which shone till they made my eyes wink so did poor dawkins's as he put out his hand all trembling and drew them in let me say added master let me say and i've had some little experience that you are the very best ecarte player with whom i ever sat down dawkins's eyes glistened as he put the money up and said law deuce ace you flatter me flatter him i should think he did it was the very thing which master meant but Mind you Dawkins continued. He I must have my revenge for I'm ruined positively ruined by your luck Well, well says mr. Thomas Smith Dawkins as pleased as if he had gained a million shall it be tomorrow Blewett what say you? Mr.. Blewett agreed in course my master after a little demurring consented to we'll meet says he at your chambers but mind, my dear fellow, not too much wine. I can't stand it at any time, especially when I have to play a carte with you, poor Dawkins left our rooms as happy as a prince. Here, Charles says he and flung me a sovereign. Poor fellow, poor fellow, I know what was a-coming, but the best of it was that these thirteen sovereigns, which Dawkins won, master had borrowed them from Mr. Blewett. I Brought him with seven more from that young gentleman's chambers that very morning for since his interview with master Blewett had nothing to refuse him Well shall I continue the tale If mr. Dawkins had been the least bit wiser it would have taken him six months before he lost his money as It was he was such a confounded ninny that it took him a very short time to part with it Next day it was Thursday and master's acquaintance with mr. Dawkins had only commenced on Tuesday Mr.. Dawkins as I said gave his party dinner at 7 Mr.. Blewett and the two mr.. D's as before play begins at 11 This time I knew the business was pretty serious for we servants was packed off to bed at 2 o'clock on Friday I went to chambers no master he came in for five minutes at about twelve made a little toilet ordered more doulas and soda water and back again He went to mr. Dawkins's They had dinner there at seven again, but nobody seemed to eat for all the victuals came out to us gentlemen They had in more wine though and must have drunk at least two dozen in the thirty-six hours At ten o'clock however on Friday night back my master came to his chambers I saw him as I never saw him before, namely, regular drunk. He staggered about the room. He danced. He hiccuped. He swore. He flung me a heap of silver, and finally he sunk down exhausted on his bed. I pulling off his boots and clothes and making him comfortable. When I had removed his garments, I did what it's the duty of every servant to do: I emptied his pockets and looked at his pocket book and all his letters a number of accidents have been prevented that way i found there among a heap of things the following pretty document i o u forty seven hundred pounds thomas smith dawkins friday sixteenth january there was another bit of paper of the same kind i o u four hundred pounds richard blewitt but this in course meant nothing Next Morning at nine master was up and as sober as a judge He dressed and was off to mr. Dawkins at 10. He ordered a cab and the two gentlemen went together Where shall he drive sir says I oh? Tell him to drive to the bank Poor Dawkins his eyes red with remorse and sleepless drunkenness Gave a shudder and a sob as he sunk back in the vehicle and they drove on That day he sold out every hapenny. He was worth except five hundred pounds About twelve master had returned and mr.. Dick Blewett came striding up the stairs with a solemn and important air Is your master at home says he? Yes, sir says I and in he walks I in course, with my ear to the keyhole listening with all my might Well says Blewett we made a pretty good night of it mr. Ducey's You settled I see with Dawkins Settled says master. Oh, yes. Yes. I've settled with him 4700 I think about that yes That makes my share. Let me see 2350 which I'll thank you to fork out Upon my word why mr. Blewett says my master. I don't really understand what you mean You don't know what I mean says Blewett in an accent such as I never before heard You don't know what I mean Did you not promise me that we were to go shares didn't I lend you twenty sovereigns the other night to pay our losings to Dawkins? Didn't you swear on your honor as a gentleman to give me half of all that might be won in this affair? Agreed sir sisters ace agreed well sir and now what have you to say? Why that I don't intend to keep my promise you infernal fool and ninny do you suppose i was laboring for you do you fancy i was going to the expense of giving a dinner to that jackass yonder that you should profit by it get away sir leave the room sir or stop here i will give you the four hundred pounds your own note of hand sir for that sum if you will consent to forget all that has passed between us and that you have never known mr algernon deuceace I've seen people angry before now, but never any like blew He stormed groaned bellowed swore At last he fairly began blubbering now cussing and gnashing his teeth now praying dear. Mr.. Doucet's to grant him mercy At last master flung open the door heaven bless us. It's well I didn't tumble head over heels into the room and said Charles show the gentleman downstairs my Master looked at him quite steady Blew it slunk down as miserable as any man. I ever see as for Dawkins heaven knows where he was Charles says my master to me about an hour afterwards. I am going to Paris you may come too if you please end of chapter 4
3: international short stories volume 2 english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org international short stories volume 2 english stories edited by william Patton. section 5 the brothers a Tale by Edward Bulwer Lytton. Part One You must imagine, then, dear Gertrude, said Trevelyan, a beautiful summer day, and by the same faculty that none possesses so richly as yourself, for it is you who can kindle something of that divine spark even in me, you must rebuild those shattered towers in the pomp of old, raise the gallery and the hall, man the battlements with waters and give the proud banners of ancestral chivalry to wave upon the walls but above sloping half down the rock you must fancy the hanging gardens of liebenstein fragrant with flowers and basking in the noonday sun on the greenest turf underneath an oak there sat three persons in the bloom of youth two of the three were brothers the third was an orphan girl whom the lord of the opposite tower of sternfels had bequeathed to the protection of his brother the chief of Liebenstein the castle itself and the domain that belonged to it passed away from the female line and became the heritage of Otho the orphan's cousin and the younger of the two brothers now seated on the turf and Oh said the elder whose name was warbeck You've twined a chaplet for my brother, have you not, dearest Leoline, a simple flower for me? The beautiful orphan, for beautiful she was, Gertrude, as the heroine of the tale you bid me tell ought to be, should she not have to the dreams of my fancy your lustrous hair and your sweet smile and your eyes of that blue that are never, never silent? Ah, pardon me that in a former tale I denied the heroine the beauty of your face and remember that to atone for it, I endowed her with the beauty of your mind. The beautiful orphan blushed to her temples, and culling from the flowers in her lap the freshest of the roses, began weaving them into a wreath for Warbeck. It would be better, said the gay Otho, to make my sober brother a chaplet of the rue and cypress, the rose is much too bright a flower for so serious a knight. Leoline held up her hand reprovingly let him laugh dearest cousin said warbeck gazing passionately on her changing cheek and thou leoline believe that the silent stream runs the deepest at this moment they heard the voice of the old chief their father calling aloud for leoline for ever when he returned from the chase he wanted her gentle presence and the hall was solitary to him if the light sound of her step and the music of her voice were not heard in welcome Leoline hastened to her guardian, and the brothers were left alone. Nothing could be more dissimilar than the features and the respective characters of Otho and Warbeck. Otho's countenance was flushed with the brown hues of health. His eyes were of the brightest hazel, his dark hair wreathed in short curls round his open and fearless brow. The jest ever echoed on his lips, and his step was bounding as the foot of the hunter of the Alps. Bold and light was his spirit if at times he betrayed the haughty insolence of youth He felt generously and though not ever ready to confess sorrow for a fault He was at least ready to brave peril for a friend But Warbeck's frame though of equal strength was more slender in its proportions than that of his brother the fair long hair that characterized his northern race hung on either side of a countenance calm and pale and Deeply impressed with thought even to sadness his features more majestic and regular than Otho's Rarely varied in their expression more resolute even than Otho. He was less impetuous More impassioned and he was also less capricious The brothers remained silent after Leoline had left them Otho carelessly braced on his sword that he had lain aside on the grass but warbeck gathered up the flowers that had been touched by the soft hand of leoline and placed them in his bosom the action disturbed Otho. he bit his lip and changed color at length he said with a forced laugh it must be confessed brother that you carry your affection for our fair cousin to a degree that even relationship seems scarcely to warrant it is true said warbeck calmly i love her with a love surpassing that of blood how said otho fiercely do you dare think of leoline as a bride dare repeated warbeck turning yet paler than his wonted hue yes i have said the word know warbeck that i too love leoline i too claim her as my bride and never while i can wield a sword never while i wear the spurs of knighthood will i render my claim to a living rival even He added sinking his voice though that rival be my brother Warbeck answered not his very soul seemed stunned He gazed long and wistfully on his brother and then turning his face away Ascended the rock without uttering a single word this silence startled Otho Accustomed to vent every emotion of his own he could not comprehend the forbearance of his brother he knew his high and brave nature too well to imagine that it arose from fear Might it not be contempt or might he not at this moment intend to seek their father and The first to proclaim his love for the orphan advance also the privilege of the elder-born As these suspicions flashed across him the haughty Athos strode to his brother's side and laying his hand on his arm said Whither goes thou? and dost thou consent to surrender leoline does she love thee otho answered warbeck breaking silence at last and his voice spoke so deep in anguish that it arrested the passions of otho even at their height it is thou who art now silent continued warbeck speak doth she love thee and has her lip confessed it i have believed that she loved me faltered otho but she is of maiden bearing and her lip at least has never told it enough said warbeck release your hold stay said atho his suspicions returning stay yet one word dost thou seek my father he ever honored thee more than me wilt thou own to him thy love and insist on thy right of birth by my soul and my hope of heaven do it and one of us two must fall poor boy Answered Warbeck bitterly, how little thou canst read the heart of one who loves truly Thinkest thou I would wed her if she loved thee Thinkest that I could even to be blessed myself give her one moment's pain out on the thought away Then wilt not thou seek our father said Otho, abashed Our father has our father the keeping of Leoline's affection answered Warbeck and shaking off his brother's grasp He sought the way to the castle as he entered the hall. He heard the voice of Leoline She was singing to the old chief one of the simple ballads of the time that the warrior and the hunter loved to hear He paused lest he should break the spell a spell stronger than a sorcerer's to him and gazing upon Leoline's beautiful form his heart sank within him his brother and himself Had each that day as they sat in the gardens given her a flower his flower was the fresher and the rarer his he saw not but she wore his brothers in her bosom the chief lulled by the music and wearied with the toils of the chase sank into sleep as the song ended and warbeck coming forward motioned to leoline to follow him he passed into a retired and solitary walk and when they were a little distance from the castle warbeck turned round and taking leoline's hand gently said Let us rest here for one moment dearest cousin. I have much on my heart to say to thee And what is there answered leoline as they sat on a mossy bank with a broad Rhine glancing below? What is there that my kind warbeck would ask of me ah would it might be some favor? something in poor leoline's power to grant for ever, from my birth you have been to me most tender most kind Jan I have often heard them say taught my first steps to walk you formed my infant lips into language And in after years when my wild cousin was far away in the forests at the chase You would brave his gay jest and remain at home lest Leoline should be weary in the solitude ah would I could repay you Warbeck turned away his cheek His heart was very full, and it was some moments before he summoned courage to reply My fair cousin said he those were happy days But they were the days of childhood new cares and new thoughts have now come on us But I am still thy friend Leoline and still thou wilt confide in me Thy young sorrows and thy young hopes as thou ever didst wilt thou not Leoline Canst thou ask me said Leoline and warbeck gazing on her face saw that though her eyes were full of tears they yet looked steadily upon his and he knew that she loved him only as a sister he sighed and paused again ere he resumed enough said he now to my task once on a time dear cousin there lived among the mountains a certain chief who had two sons and an orphan like thyself dwelt also in his halls and the elder son but no matter let us not waste words on him the younger son then loved the orphan dearly more dearly than cousins love and Fearful of refusal he prayed the elder one to urge his suit to the orphan Leoline my tale is done canst thou not love otho as he loves thee And now lifting his eyes to leoline he saw that she trembled violently and her cheek was covered with blushes Say continued he mastering himself is not that flower, his present, a token that he is chiefly in thy thoughts? Ah, Warbeck, do not deem me ungrateful that I wear not yours also. But-Hush, said Warbeck hastily. I am but as thy brother. Is not Otho more? He is young, brave, and beautiful. God grant that he may deserve thee if thou givest him so rich a gift as thy affections. I saw less of Otho in my childhood, said Leoline evasively. Therefore, his kindness of late years seemed stranger to me than thine. And thou wilt not then reject him? Thou wilt be his bride? And thy sister, answered Leoline. Bless thee, mine own dear cousin. One brother's kiss, then, and farewell. Otho shall thank thee for himself. He kissed her forehead calmly, and turning away plunged into the thicket. Then, nor till then, he gave vent to such emotions, as had Leoline seen them, Otho's suit had been lost forever. For passionately, deeply as in her fond and innocent heart she loved Otho, the happiness of Warbeck was not less dear to her. When the young knight had recovered his self-possession, he went in search of Otho. He found him alone in the wood, leaning with folded arms against a tree, and gazing moodily on the ground. Warbeck's noble heart was touched at his brother's dejection. Cheer thee, Otho, said he. I bring thee no bad tidings. I have seen Leoline. I have conversed with her. Nay, start not. She loves thee. She is thine. Generous, generous Warbeck, exclaimed Otho, and he threw himself on his brother's neck no no said he Th- this must not be thou hast the elder claim i resign her to thee forgive me my waywardness brother forgive me think of the past no more said warbeck the love of leoline is an excuse for greater offences than thine and now be kind to her her nature is soft and keen i know her well for i have studied her faintest wish thou art hasty and quick of ire but remember that a word wounds where love is deep for my sake as for hers think more of her happiness than thine own now seek her she waits to hear from thy lips the tale that sounded cold upon mine with that he left his brother and once more re-entering the castle he went into the hall of his ancestors his father still slept he put his hand on his gray hair and blessed him then stealing up to his chamber he braced on his helm and armor and thrice kissing the hilt of Fate's sword said with a flushed cheek henceforth be thou my bride and then passing from the castle he sped by the most solitary paths down the rock gained the Rhine and hailing one of the numerous fishermen of the river won the opposite shore and alone but not sad for his high heart supported him and leoline at least was happy he hastened to frankfort the town was all gaiety and life arms clanged at every corner the sounds of martial music the wave of banners the glittering of plume casks the neighing of war steeds all united to stir the blood and inflame the sense St. Bertrand had lifted the sacred cross along the shores of the Rhine and the streets of Frankfurt witnessed with what success on That same day Warbeck assumed the sacred badge and was enlisted among the Knights of the Emperor Conrad Now we must suppose some time to have elapsed and Otho and Leoline were not yet wedded for in the first fervor of his gratitude to his brother Otho had proclaimed to his father and to leoline the conquest warbeck had obtained over himself and leoline touched to the heart would not consent that the wedding should take place immediately let him at least said she not be insulted by a premature festivity and give him time amongst the lofty beauties he will gaze upon in a far country to forget Otho. That he once loved her who is the beloved of thee. The old chief applauded this delicacy, and even Otho, in the first flush of his feelings towards his brother, did not venture to oppose it. They settled then that the marriage should take place at the end of a year. Months rolled away, and an absent and moody gloom settled upon Otho's brow. In his excursions with his gay companions among the neighboring towns he heard of nothing but the glory of the Crusaders of The homage paid to the heroes of the cross at the courts They visited of the adventures of their life and the exciting spirit that animated their war in fact neither minstrel nor priest suffered the theme to grow cold and the fame of those who had gone forth to the holy strife gave at once emulation and discontent to the youths who remained behind and my brother enjoys this ardent and glorious life said the impatient otho while i whose arm is as strong and whose heart is as bold languish here listening to the dull tales of a hoary sire and the silly songs of an orphan girl his heart smote him at the last sentence but he had already begun to weary of the gentle love of leoline Perhaps when he had no longer to gain a triumph over a rival, the excitement paled, or perhaps his proud spirit secretly chafed at being conquered by his brother in generosity, even when outshining him in the success of love. But poor Leoline, once taught that she was to consider Otho her betrothed, surrendered her heart entirely to his control. His wild spirit, his dark beauty, his daring valor, One while they awed her and in the fitfulness of his nature with those perpetual springs of hope and fear That are the fountains of ever agitated love She saw with increasing grief the change that was growing over Otho's mind Nor did she divine the cause Surely I have not offended him thought she among the companions of Otho was one who possessed a singular sway over him He was a knight of that mysterious order of the temple which exercised at one time so great a command over the minds of men a Severe and dangerous wound in a brawl with an English knight had confined the Templar at Frankfurt and prevented his joining the crusade During his slow recovery He had formed an intimacy with Otho and taking up his residence at the castle of Liebenstein had been struck with the beauty of Leoline prevented by his oath from marriage he allowed himself a double license in love and Doubted not could he disengage the young knight from his betrothed that she would add a new conquest to the many he had already achieved Artfully therefore he painted to otho the various attractions of the holy cause and above all He failed not to describe with glowing colors the beauties who in the gorgeous East Distinguished with the prodigal favor the warriors of the cross Dowries unknown in the more sterile mountains of the Rhine Accompanied the hand of these beauteous maidens and even a prince's daughter was not deemed he said too lofty a marriage For the heroes who might win kingdoms for themselves To me said the Templar such hopes are eternally denied But you were you not already betrothed what fortunes might await you by such discourses the ambition of otho was perpetually aroused they served to deepen his discontent and his present obscurity and to convert to distaste the only solace it afforded in the innocence and affection of leoline one night a minstrel sought shelter from the storm in the halls of liebenstein his visit was welcomed by the chief and he repaid the hospitality he had received by the exercise of his art He sang of the chase and the gaunt hound started from the hearth He sang of love and Otho forgetting his restless dreams Approached to Leoline and laid himself at her feet Louder then and louder rose the strain the minstrel sang of war He painted the feats of the Crusaders he plunged into the thickest of the battle the steed neighed the trump sounded and you might have heard the ringing of the steel but when he came to signalize the names of the boldest knights high among the loftiest sounded the name of Sir Warbeck of Liebenstein thrice had he saved the Imperial banner two chargers slain beneath him he had covered their bodies with the fiercest of the foe gentle in the tent and terrible in the fray the minstrel should forget his craft ere the Rhine should forget its hero the chief started from his seat Leoline clasped the minstrel's hand Speak you have seen him. He lives. He is honored. I myself am but just from Palestine Brave chief and noble maiden I saw the gallant knight of Liebenstein at the right hand of the Imperial Conrad And he lady was the only knight whom admiration shone upon without envy its shadow Who then continued the minstrel once more striking his harp Who then would remain inglorious in the hall should not the banners of his sires reproach him as they wave and shall not every voice from palestine strike shame into his soul right cried Otho suddenly and flinging himself at the feet of his father thou hearest what my brother has done and thine aged eyes weep tears of joy shall i only dishonour thine old age with a rusted sword no grant me like my brother to go forth with the heroes of the cross noble youth cried the harper therein speaks the soul of sir warbeck hear him sir knight hear the noble youth heaven cries aloud in his voice said the templar solemnly my son i cannot chide thine ardour said the old chief raising him with trembling hands but leoline thy betrothed Pale as a statue, with ears that doubted their sense as they drank in the cruel words of her lover, stood the orphan. She did not speak, she scarcely breathed. She sank into her seat and gazed upon the ground, till, at the speech of the chief, both maiden pride and maiden tenderness restored her consciousness, and she said, I, uncle, shall I bid Otho stay when his wishes bid him depart? He will return to thee noble lady covered with glory said the harper But Otho said no more the touching voice of Leoline went to his soul He resumed his seat in silence and Leoline going up to him whispered gently Act as though I were not and left the hall to commune with her heart and to weep alone I can wed her before I go said Arthur suddenly as he sat that night in the Templars chamber why that is true and leave thy bride in the first week a hard trial better than incur the chance of never calling her mine dear kind beloved leoline assuredly she deserves all from thee and indeed it is no small sacrifice at thy years and with thy mane to renounce for ever all interest among the noble maidens thou wilt visit ah from the galleries of constantinople what eyes will look down on thee and what ears learning that thou art otho the bridegroom will turn away caring for thee no more a bridegroom without a bride nay man much as the cross wants warriors i am enough thy friend to tell thee if thou weddest, to stay peaceably at home and forget in the chase the labours of war from which thou wouldest strip the ambition of love I would I knew what were best said, Otho irresolutely, my brother ha shall he for ever excel me, but leoline, how will she grieve, she who left him for me, was that thy fault, said the Templar gaily. It may many times chance to thee again to be preferred to another troth, it is a sin under which the conscience may walk lightly enough, but sleep on it, Otho, my eyes grow heavy. The next day Otho sought Leoline, and proposed to her that their wedding should precede his parting. But so embarrassed was he, so divided between two wishes, that Leoline, offended, hurt, stung by his coldness, refused the proposal at once. She left him, lest he should see her weep, and then, then she repented even of her just pride. End of Section 5 international short stories volume two english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org international short stories volume two english stories edited by william Patton. section six the brothers a tale by edward bulwer Lytton, part two but arthur striving to appease his conscience with the belief that hers now was the sole fault busied himself in preparations for his departure anxious to outshine his brother he departed not as warbeck alone and unattended but levying all the horse men and money that his domain of sternfels which he had not yet tenanted would afford he repaired to Frankfort at the head of a glittering troop. The Templar, affecting a relapse, tarried behind and promised to join him at that Constantinople of which he had so loudly boasted. Meanwhile, he devoted his whole powers of pleasing to console the unhappy orphan. The force of her simple love was, however, stronger than all his arts. In vain he insinuated doubts of Otho, she refused to hear them in vain he poured with the softest accents into her ear the witchery of flattery and song She turned heedlessly away and only pained by the courtesies that had so little resemblance to Otho She shut herself up in her chamber and pined in solitude for her forsaken The Templar now resolved to attempt darker arts to obtain power over her when fortunately he was summoned suddenly away by a mission from the grand master of so high import that it could not be resisted by a passion stronger in his breast than love the passion of ambition he left the castle to its solitude and otho peopling it no more with his gay companions no solitude could be more unfrequently disturbed meanwhile though ever and anon the fame of warbeck reached their ears it came unaccompanied with that of otho of him they had no tidings and thus the love of the tender often was kept alive by the perpetual restlessness of fear at length the old chief died and leoline was left utterly alone one evening as she sat with her maidens in the hall the ringing of a steed's hooves were heard in the outer court a horn sounded the heavy gates were unbarred, and a knight of a stately mane and covered with a mantle of the cross entered the hall. He stopped for one moment at the entrance, as if overpowered by his emotion. In the next, he had clasped Leoline to his breast. Dost thou not recognize thy cousin Warbeck? He doffed his casque, and she saw that majestic brow, which, unlike Arthur's, had never changed or been clouded in its aspect to her the war is suspended for the present said he i learned my father's death and i have returned home to hang up my banner in the hall and spend my days in peace time and the life of camps had worked their change upon warbeck's face the fair hair deepened in its shade was worn from the temples and disclosed one scar that rather aided the beauty of a countenance that had always something high and martial in its character But the calm it had once worn had settled down into sadness He conversed more rarely than before and though he smiled not less often nor less kindly The smile had more of thought and the kindness had forgot its passion He had apparently conquered a love that was so early crossed But not that fidelity of remembrance which made leoline dearer to him than all others and forbade him to replace the images He had graven upon his soul the orphan's lips trembled with the name of otho but a certain recollection stifled even her anxiety warbeck hastened to forestall her questions otho was well he said and sojourning at constantinople he had lingered there so long that the crusade had terminated without his aid doubtless now he would speedily return a month a week nay a day might restore him to her side leoline was inexpressibly consoled Yet something remained untold. Why, so eager for the strife of the sacred tomb, had he thus tarried at Constantinople? She wondered. She wearied conjecture. But she did not dare to search farther. The generous Warbeck concealed from her that Otho led a life of the most reckless and indolent dissipations, wasting his wealth in the pleasures of the Greek court and only occupying his ambition were the wild schemes of founding a principality in those foreign climes which the enterprises of the norman adventurers had rendered so alluring to the knightly bandits of the age the cousins resumed their old friendship and warbeck believed that it was friendship alone they walked again among the gardens in which their childhood had strayed they sat again on the green turf whereon they had woven flowers they looked down on the eternal mirror of the Rhine. Ah, uh, could it have reflected the same unawakened freshness of their life's early spring! The grave and contemplative mind of Warbeck had not been so contented with the honors of war but that it had sought also those calmer sources of emotion which were yet found amongst the sages of the East he had drunk at the fountain of the wisdom of those distant climes and had acquired the habits of meditation which were indulged by those wiser tribes from which the crusaders brought back to the north the knowledge that was destined to enlighten their posterity warbeck therefore had little in common with the ruder chiefs around he did not summon them to his board nor attend their noisy wassails often late at night in yon shattered tower his lonely lamp shone still over the mighty stream and his only relief to loneliness was in the presence and the song of his soft cousin Months rolled on when suddenly a vague and fearful rumor reached the castle of Liebenstein Arthur was returning home to the neighboring tower of Sternfels, but not alone He brought back with him a Greek bride of surprising beauty endowed with almost regal wealth Leoline was the first to discredit the rumor Leoline was soon the only one who disbelieved Bright in the summer noon flashed the array of horsemen far up the steep ascent wound the gorgeous cavalcade The lonely towers of Liebenstein heard the echo of many a laugh and peal of merriment Otho bore home his bride to the halls of Sternfels that night there was a great banquet in Otho's castle the light shone from every casement and music swelled loud and ceaselessly within By the side of otho glittering with the prodigal jewels of the east sat the greek her dark locks her flashing eye the false colors of her complexion dazzled the eyes of her guests on her left hand sat the templar by the holy rude quoth the templar gaily though he crossed himself as he spoke we shall scare the owls tonight on those grim towers of liebenstein thy grave brother sir otho will have much to do to comfort his cousin when she sees what a gallant life she would have led with thee poor damsel said the greek with affected pity doubtless she will now be reconciled to the rejected one i hear he is a knight of a comely mien peace said otho sternly and quaffing a large goblet of wine the greek bit her lip and glanced meaningly at the templar who returned the glance nought but a beauty such as thine can win my pardon said otho turning to his bride and gazing passionately in her face the greek smiled well sped the feast the laugh deepened the wine circled when otho's eyes rested on a guest at the bottom of the board whose figure was mantled from head to foot and whose face was covered by a dark veil Beshrew me, said he aloud, but this is scarce courteous at our revel. Will the stranger vouchsafe to unmask? These words turned all eyes to the figure, and they who sat next it perceived that it trembled violently. At length it rose, and walking slowly but with grace to the fair Greek, it laid beside her a wreath of flowers. It is a simple gift lady said the stranger in a voice of such sweetness that the rudest guest was touched by it but it is all i can offer and the bride of otho should not be without a gift at my hands may ye both be happy and with these words the stranger turned and passed from the hall silent as a shadow bring back the stranger cried the greek recovering her surprise twenty guests sprang up to obey her mandate no no said otho waving his hand impatiently touch her not heed her not at your peril the greek bent over the flowers to conceal her anger and from amongst them dropped the broken half of a ring otho recognized it at once it was the broken half of that ring which he had broken with his betrothed alas he required not such a sign to convince him that figure so full of ineffable grace that touching voice that simple action so tender in its sentiment that gift that blessing came only from the forsaken and forgiving leoline but warbeck alone in his solitary tower paced to and fro with agitated steps deep undying wrath at his brother's falsehood mingled with one burning one delicious hope he confessed now that he had deceived himself when he thought his passion was no more was there any longer a bar to his union with leoline in that delicacy which was breathed into him by his love he had forborne to seek or to offer her the insult of consolation he felt that the shock should be borne alone, and yet he pined he thirsted to throw himself at her feet, nursing these contending thoughts, he was aroused by a knock at his door he opened it the passage was thronged by leoline's maidens pale anxious weeping leoline had left the castle with but one female attendant none knew whither they knew too soon from the hall of sternfels she had passed over in the dark and inclement night to the valley in which the convent of bornhofen offered to the weary of spirit and the broken of heart a refuge at the shrine of God at daybreak the next morning warbeck was at the convent's gate he saw leoline what a change one night of suffering had made in that face which was the fountain of all loveliness to him he clasped her in his arms he wept he urged all that love could urge he besought her to accept that heart which had never wronged her memory by a thought oh leoline didst thou not say once that these arms nursed thy childhood At this voice soothe thine early sorrows ah trust to them again and forever from a love that forsook thee turn to the love that never swerved no said leoline no what would the chivalry of which thou art the boast what would they say of thee wert thou to wed one affianced and deserted who tarried years for another and brought to thine arms only that heart which he had abandoned no And even if thou, as I know thou wouldst be, were callous to such wrong of thy high name, shall I bring to thee a broken heart and bruised spirit? Shalt thou wed sorrow and not joy? And shall sighs that will not cease, and tears that may not be dried, be the only dowry of thy bride? Thou too, for whom all blessings should be ordained? No, forget me, forget thy poor Leoline. She hath nothing but prayers for thee in vain warbeck pleaded in vain he urged all that passion and truth could urge the springs of earthly love were forever dried up in the orphan's heart and Her resolution was immovable She tore herself from his arms and the gate of the convent creaked harshly on his ear a new and stern emotion now wholly possessed him though naturally mild and gentle he cherished anger when once it was aroused with the strength of a calm mind leoline's tears her sufferings her wrongs her uncomplaining spirit the change already stamped upon her face all cried aloud to him for vengeance she is an orphan said he bitterly she hath none to protect to redress her save me alone my father's charge over her forlorn youth descends of right to me what matters it whether her forsaker be my brother he is her foe hath he not crushed her heart hath he not consigned her to sorrow till the grave and with what insult no warning no excuse with lewd wassailers keeping revel for his new bridles in the hearing before the sight of his betrothed enough the time hath come when to use his own words one of us two must fall he half drew his sword as he spoke and thrusting it back violently into the sheath strode home to his solitary castle the sound of steeds and of the hunting horn met him at his portal the bridal train of sternfels all mirth and gladness were parting for the chase that evening a knight in complete armor entered the banquet hall of sternfels and defied otho on the part of warbeck of liebenstein to mortal combat Even the Templar was startled by so unnatural a challenge But Otho, reddening took up the gauge and the day and spot were fixed Discontented wroth with himself a savage gladness seized him He longed to wreak his desperate feelings even on his brother Nor had he ever in his jealous heart forgiven that brother his virtues and his renown at the appointed hour the brothers met as foes Warbeck's visor was up and all the settled sternness of his soul was stamped upon his brow but otho more willing to brave the arm than to face the front of his brother kept his visor down the templar stood by him with folded arms it was a study in human passions to his mocking mind scarce had the first trump sounded to this dread conflict when a new actor entered on the scene the rumor of so unprecedented an event had not failed to reach the convent of bornhofen and now two by two came the sisters of the holy shrine and the armed men made way as with trailing garments and veiled faces they swept along into the very lists at that moment one from amongst them left her sisters with a slow majestic pace and paused not till she stood right between the brother foes warbeck she said in a hollow voice that curdled up his dark spirit as it spoke is it thus thou wouldst prove thy love and maintain thy trust over the fatherless orphan whom thy sire bequeathed to thy care? Shall I have murder on my soul?" At that question she paused, and those who heard it were struck dumb and shuddered. "The murder of one man by the hand of his own brother?" "Away, Warbeck! I command!" "Shall I forget thy wrongs, Leoline?" said Warbeck. "Wrongs? They united me to God!" They are forgiven. They are no more. Earth has deserted me, but heaven hath taken me to its arms. Shall I murmur at the change? And thou, Otho, here her voice faltered. Thou, dost thy conscience smite thee not? Wouldst thou atone for robbing me of hope by barring against me the future? Wretch that I should be! Could I dream of mercy? Could I dream of comfort? If thy brother fell by thy sword in my cause? Otho I have pardoned thee and blessed thee and thine once perhaps thou didst love me Remember how I love thee cast down thine arms? Otho gazed at the veiled form before him where had the soft leoline learned to command He turned to his brother he felt all that he had inflicted upon both and casting his sword upon the ground he knelt at the feet of leoline and kissed her garment with a devotion that votary never lavished on a holier saint the spell that lay over the warriors around was broken there was one loud cry of congratulation and joy and thou warbeck said leoline turning to the spot where still motionless and haughty warbeck stood have i ever rebelled against thy will said he softly and buried the point of his sword in the earth yet leoline yet he added looking at his kneeling brother yet art thou already better avenged than by this steel thou art thou art cried otho smiting his breast and slowly and scarce noting the crowd that fell back from his path warbeck left the lists leoline said no more her divine errand was fulfilled she looked long and wistfully after the stately form of the knight of liebenstein and then with a slight sigh, she turned to Otho. This is the last time we shall meet on earth. Peace be with us all. She then, with the same majestic and collected bearing, passed on toward the sisterhood, and as in the same solemn procession they glided back toward the convent, there was not a man present, no, not even the hardened Templar who would not, like Otho, have bent his knee to Leoline once more otho plunged into the wild reveille of the age his castle was thronged with guests and night after night the lighted halls shone down thwart the tranquil rhine the beauty of the greek the wealth of otto the fame of the templar attracted all the chivalry from far and near never had the banks of the rhine known so hospitable a lord as the knight of sternfels yet gloom seized him in the midst of gladness And the revel was welcome only as the escape from remorse the voice of scandal however soon began to mingle with that of envy at the pomp of otho the fair greek it was said weary of her lord lavished her smiles on others the young and the fair were always most acceptable at the castle and above all her guilty love for the templar scarcely affected disguise otho alone appeared unconscious of the rumor And though he had begun to neglect his bride he relaxed not in his intimacy with the Templar It was noon and the Greek was sitting in her bower alone with her suspected lover the rich perfumes of the East mingled with the fragrance of flowers and Various luxuries unknown till then in those northern shores gave a soft and effeminate character to the room I Tell thee said the Greek petulantly that he begins to suspect but i have seen him watch thee and mutter as he watched and play with the hilt of his dagger better let us fly ere it is too late for his vengeance would be terrible were it once aroused against us ah why did i ever forsake my own sweet land for these barbarous shores there love is not considered eternal nor inconstancy a crime worthy death peace pretty one said the templar carelessly thou knowest not the laws of our foolish chivalry Thinkest thou I could fly from a knight's halls like a thief in the night Why verily even the red cross would not cover such dishonor if thou fearest that thy dull lord suspects Let us part the Emperor hath sent to me from Frankfurt ere evening. I might be on my way thither And I left to brave the barbarians revenge alone is this thy chivalry nay prate not so wildly answered the Templar Surely, when the object of his suspicion is gone, thy woman's art and thy Greek wiles can easily allay the jealous fiend. Do I not know thee, Glycera? Why thou wouldst fool all men save a Templar, and thou cruel, wouldst thou leave me? Said the Greek, weeping. How shall I live without thee? The Templar laughed lightly. Can such eyes ever weep without a comforter? But farewell. I must not be found with thee. Tomorrow I depart for Frankfurt. We shall meet again. As soon as the door closed on the Templar, the Greek rose and pacing the room said, Selfish, selfish, how could I ever trust him? Yet I dare not brave Otho alone. Surely it was his step that disturbed us in our yesterday's interview. Nay, I will fly. I can never want a companion. She clapped her hands. A young page appeared. She threw herself on her seat and wept bitterly. The page approached, and love was mingled with his compassion. Why weepest thou, dearest lady? said he. Is there aught in which Conrad services? Services? ah! thou hast read his heart! His devotion may avail? Otho had wandered out the whole day alone. His vassals had observed that his brow was more gloomy than its wont, for he usually concealed whatever might prey within some of the most confidential of his servitors he had conferred with and the conference had deepened the shadow of his countenance he returned at twilight the greek did not honor the repast with her presence she was unwell and not to be disturbed the gay templar was the life of the board thou carriest a sad brow to-day sir otho said he good faith thou hast caught it from the heir of liebenstein I have something troubles me, answered Otho, forcing a smile, which I would fain impart to thy friendly bosom. The night is clear and the moon is up. Let us forth alone into the garden. The Templar rose, and he forgot not to gird on his sword as he followed the knight. Otho led the way to one of the most distant terraces that overhung the Rhine. Sir Templar, said he, pausing. Answer me one question on thy knightly honor was it thy step that left my lady's bower yester-eve at vesper Startled by so sudden a query the wily Templar faltered in his reply the red blood mounted to Otho's brow Nay lie not sir knight these eyes thanks to God have not witnessed But these ears have heard from others of my dishonor as Otho spoke The Templar's eyes resting on the water perceived a boat rowing fast over the Rhine the distance forbade him to see more than the outline of two figures within it She was right thought he perhaps that boat already bears her from the danger Drawing himself up to the full height of his tall stature the Templar replied haughtily Sir Otho of Sternfels if thou hast deigned to question thy vassals obtain from them only an answer it is not to contradict such minions that the knights of the temple pledge their word enough cried otho losing patience and striking the templar with his clenched hand draw traitor draw alone in his lofty tower warbeck watched the night deepen over the heavens and commune mournfully with himself to what end thought he have these strong affections these capacities of love this yearning after sympathy been given me Unloved and unknown I walked to my grave and all the nobler mysteries of my heart are forever to be untold and Thus musing he heard not the challenge of the water on the wall or the unbarring of the gate below Or the tread of footsteps along the winding stair The door was thrown suddenly open and Otho stood before him come he said In a low voice trembling with passion come i will show thee that which shall glad thine heart twofold is leoline avenged warbeck looked in amazement on a brother he had not met since they stood in arms against the other's life and he now saw that the arm that otho extended to him dripped with blood trickling drop by drop upon the floor come said otho follow me it is my last prayer come for leoline's sake come at that name Warbeck hesitated no longer he girded on his sword and followed his brother down the stairs and through the castle gate the Porter scarcely believed his eyes when he saw the two brothers so long divided go forth at that hour alone and seemingly in friendship Warbeck arrived at that epoch in the feelings when nothing stuns followed with silent steps the rapid strides of his brother the two castles as you are aware are scarce a stone's throw from each other in a few minutes otho paused at an open space in one of the terraces of sternfels on which the moon shone bright and steady behold he said in a ghastly voice behold and warbeck saw on the sward the corpse of the templar bathed with a blood that even still poured fast and warm from his heart hark said otho he it was who first made me waver in my vows to leoline he persuaded me to wed yon whited falsehood hark he who had thus wronged my real love dishonored me with my faithless bride and thus 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 as grinding his teeth he spurned again and again the dead body of the templar thus leoline and myself are avenged and thy wife said warbeck pityingly fled with a hireling page it is well she was not worth the sword that was once belted on by leoline the tradition dear gertrude proceeds to tell us that atho though often menaced by the rude justice of the day for the death of the Templar defied and escaped the menace on the very night of his revenge a long and delirious illness seized him the generous warbeck forgave forgot all Save that he had once been consecrated by Leoline's love. He tended him through his sickness, and when he recovered, Otho was an altered man. He forswore the comrades he had once courted, the revels he had once led. The halls of Sternfels were desolate as those of Liebenstein. The only companion Otho sought was Warbeck, and Warbeck bore with him. They had no topic in common. For one subject, Warbeck, at least felt too deeply ever to trust himself to speak, and yet did a strange and secret sympathy reunite them. They had at least a common sorrow, often they were seen wandering together by the solitary banks of the river or amidst the woods without apparently interchanging word or sign. Otho died first and still in the prime of youth, and Warbeck was now left companionless in vain the imperial court wooed him to its pleasures in vain the camp proffered him the oblivion of renown ah could he tear himself from a spot where morning and night he could see afar amidst the valley the roof that sheltered leoline and on which every copse every turf reminded him of former days his solitary life his midnight vigils strange scrolls about his chamber obtained him by degrees the Repute of cultivating the darker arts and shunning he became shunned by all But still it was sweet to hear from time to time of the increasing sanctity of her in whom he had treasured up his last thoughts of earth She it was who healed the sick? She it was who relieved the poor and the superstition of that age brought pilgrims from afar to the altars that she served many years afterwards a band of lawless robbers who ever and anon broke from their mountain fastness to pillage and to desolate the valleys of the rhine who spared neither sex nor age neither tower nor hut nor even the houses of god himself laid waste the territories round bornhofen and demanded treasures from the convent the abbess of the bold lineage of Rudesheim refused the sacrilegious demand the convent was stormed its vassals resisted the robbers inured to slaughter won the day Already the gates were forced when a knight at the head of a small but hardy troop rushed down from the mountainside And turned the tide of the fray Wherever his sword flashed fell a foe Wherever his war cry sounded was a space of dead men in the thick of the battle the fight was won the convent saved the abbess and the sisterhood came forth to bless their deliverer laid under an aged oak he was bleeding fast to death his head was bare and his locks were gray but scarcely yet with years one only of the sisterhood recognized that majestic face one bathed his parched lips one held his dying hand and in leoline's presence passed away the faithful spirit of the last lord of liebenstein Oh said Gertrude through her tears Surely you must have altered the facts Surely surely it must have been impossible for Leoline with a woman's heart to have loved Otho more than Warbeck My child said Vane. so think women when they read a tale of love and see the whole heart Bared before them But not so act they in real life when they see only the surface of character and pierce not its depths until it is too late end of section 6
2: international short stories volume 2 english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org International short stories volume 2 English stories edited by William Patton section 7 Dr. Manette's manuscript by Charles Dickens I alexandre manette unfortunate physician native of Beauvais and afterwards resident in Paris Write this melancholy paper in my doleful cell in the Bastille during the last month of the year 1767 I write it at stolen intervals under every difficulty I design to secret it in the wall of the chimney where I have slowly and laboriously made a place of concealment for it some pitying hand may find it there when I and my sorrows are dust These words are formed by the rusty iron point with which I write with difficulty in Scrapings of soot and charcoal from the chimney mixed with blood in the last month of the tenth year of my captivity Hope has quite departed from my breast I Know from terrible warnings I have noted in myself that my reason will not long remain unimpaired but I solemnly declare that I am at this time in the possession of my right mind that my memory is exact and Circumstantial and that I write the truth as I shall answer for these my last recorded words Whether they be ever read by men or not at the eternal judgment seat One cloudy moonlight night in the third week of December I think the 22nd of the month in the year 1757 I was walking on a retired part of the quay by the Seine for the refreshment of the frosty air At an hour's distance from my place of residence in the street of the school of medicine when a carriage came along behind me driven very fast As I stood aside to let that carriage pass apprehensive that it might otherwise run me down a Head was pulled out at the window and a voice called to the driver to stop the carriage stopped as soon as the driver could rein in his horses, and the same voice called to me by my name. I answered. The carriage was then so far in advance of me that two gentlemen had time to open the door and alight before I came up with it. I observed that they were both wrapped in cloaks, and appeared to conceal themselves. As they stood side by side near the carriage door, I also observed that they both looked of about my own age, or rather younger, and that they were greatly alike in stature, manner, voice, and as far as I could see, face, too. You are Dr. Manette, said one. I am. Dr. Manette, formerly of Beauvais, said the other, the young physician, originally an expert surgeon, who within the last year or two has made a rising reputation in Paris? Gentlemen, I returned. I am that dr. Manette of whom you speak so graciously we have been to your residence said the first and Not being so fortunate as to find you there and being informed that you were probably walking in this direction We followed in the hope of overtaking you Will you please to enter the carriage? The manner of both was imperious and they both moved as these words were spoken so as to place me between themselves and the carriage door They were armed. I was not Gentlemen said I pardon me, but I usually inquire who does me the honor to seek my assistance And what is the nature of the case to which I am summoned the reply to this was made by him who had spoken second? Doctor your clients are people of condition as to the nature of the case our Confidence in your skill assures us that you will ascertain it for yourself better than we can describe it enough Will you please enter the carriage? I could do nothing, but comply and I entered it in silence They both entered after me the last springing in after putting up the steps the carriage turned about and drove on at its former speed I Repeat this conversation exactly as it occurred. I have no doubt that it is word for word the same I Describe everything exactly as it took place constraining my mind not to wander from the task Where I make the broken marks that follow here, I leave off for the time and put my paper in its hiding place. The carriage left the streets behind, passed the north barrier, and emerged upon the country road. At two-thirds of a league from the barrier, I did not estimate the distance at that time, but afterwards when I traversed it, it struck out of the main avenue and presently stopped at a solitary house. We all three alighted and walked by a damp soft footpath in a garden where a Neglected fountain had overflowed to the door of the house It was not opened immediately in answer to the ringing of the bell and One of my two conductors struck the man who opened it with his heavy riding glove across the face There was nothing in this action to attract my particular attention for I had seen common people struck more commonly than dogs but the other of the two being angry likewise struck the man in like manner with his arm The look and bearing of the brothers were then so exactly alike That I then first perceived them to be twin brothers From the time of our alighting at the outer gate Which we found locked and which one of the brothers had opened to admit us and had relocked, I had heard cries proceeding from an upper chamber. I was conducted to this chamber straight The cries growing louder as we ascended the stairs, and I found a patient in a high fever of the brain lying on a bed The patient was a woman of great beauty and young assuredly not much past 20 Her hair was torn and ragged and her arms were bound to her sides with sashes and handkerchiefs I noticed that these bonds were all portions of a gentleman's dress On one of them which was a fringed scarf for a dress of ceremony I Saw the armorial bearings of a noble and the letter e I Saw this within the first minute of my contemplation of the patient for in her restless striving She had turned over on her face on the edge of the bed And had drawn the end of the scarf into her mouth and was in danger of suffocation my first act was to put out my hand to relieve her breathing And in moving the scarf aside the embroidery on the corner caught my sight I Turned her gently over placed my hands upon her breast to calm her and keep her down and looked into her face Her eyes were dilated and wild and she constantly uttered piercing shrieks and repeated the words my husband my father and my brother and Then counted up to twelve and said hush For an instant and no more she would pause to listen and Then the piercing shrieks would begin again, and she would repeat the cry My husband my father and my brother and would count up to twelve and say hush There was no variation in the order of the manner There was no cessation, but the regular moments pause in the utterance of these sounds How long I asked has this lasted To distinguish the brothers. I will call them the elder and the younger By the elder. I mean him who exercised the most authority It was the elder who replied since about this hour last night She has a husband a father and a brother a brother. I do not address her brother He answered with great contempt. No she has some recent association with the number 12 The younger brother impatiently rejoined with 12 o'clock See gentlemen said I still keeping my hands upon her breast how useless. I am as you have brought me If I had known what I was coming to see I could have come provided as it is time must be lost There are no medications to be obtained in this lonely place The elder brother looked to the younger who said haughtily there is a case of medicines here And Brought it from a closet and put it on the table. I Opened some of the bottles smelt them and put the stoppers to my lips If I had wanted to use anything save narcotic medicines that were poisons in themselves I would not have administered any of those Do you doubt them asked the younger brother you see monsieur? I am going to use them I replied and said no more I made the patient swallow with great difficulty and after many efforts the dose that I had desired to give. As I intended to repeat it after a while, and as it was necessary to watch its influence, I sat down by the side of the bed. There was a timid and suppressed woman in attendance, wife of the man downstairs, who had retreated into a corner. The house was damp and decayed, indifferently furnished, evidently recently occupied and temporarily used some thick old hangings had been nailed up before the windows to deaden the sound of the shrieks they continued to be uttered in their regular succession with the cry my husband my father and my brother the counting up to twelve and hush the frenzy was so violent that i had not unfastened the bandages restraining the arms but i had looked to them to see that they were not painful The only spark of encouragement in the case was that my hand upon the sufferer's breast had this much soothing influence that for minutes at a time It tranquilized the figure It had no effect upon the cries No pendulum could be more regular For the reason that my hand had this effect I assume I had sat by the side of the bed for half an hour With the two brothers looking on before the elder said there is another patient I was startled and asked is it a pressing case You had better see he carelessly answered and took up a light The other patient lay in a back room across a second staircase which was a species of loft over a stable There was a low plastered ceiling to a part of it The rest was open to the ridge of the tiled roof and there were beams across Hay and straw were stored in that portion of the place Faggots for firing and a heap of apples in sand I Had to pass through that part to get at the other My memory is circumstantial and unshaken I try it with these details and I see them all in this my cell in the Bastille near the close of the tenth year of my captivity as I saw them all that night On Some hay on the ground with a cushion thrown under his head lay a handsome peasant boy a Boy of not more than seventeen at the most He lay on his back with his teeth set his right hand clenched on his breast and his glaring eyes looking straight upward I Could not see where his wound was as I kneeled on one knee over him But I could see that he was dying of a wound from a sharp point I am a doctor my poor fellow said I Let me examine it. I do not want it examined. He answered let it be It was under his hand and I soothed him to let me move his hand away The wound was a sword thrust received from 20 to 24 hours before But no skill could have saved him if it had been looked to without delay He was then dying fast as I turned my eyes to the elder brother I saw him looking down at this handsome boy whose life was ebbing out as if he were a wounded bird or hare or rabbit, not at all as if he were a fellow-creature. How has this been done, monsieur? said I. A crazed young common dog, a serf, forced my brother to draw upon him, and has fallen by my brother's sword like a gentleman. There was no touch of pity, sorrow, or kindred humanity in this answer. The speaker seemed to acknowledge that it was inconvenient to have that different order of creature dying there and That it would have been better if he had died in the usual obscure routine of his vermin kind He was quite incapable of any compassionate feeling about the boy or about his fate The boy's eyes had slowly moved to him as he had spoken and now they slowly moved to me doctor they are very proud these nobles but we common dogs are proud too sometimes they plunder us outrage us beat us kill us but we have a little pride left sometimes she have you seen her doctor the shrieks and the cries were audible there though subdued by the distance he referred to them as if she were lying in our presence i said i have seen her she is my sister doctor they have had their shameful rights these nobles in the modesty and virtue of our sisters many years but we have had good girls among us i know it and have heard my father say so she was a good girl she was betrothed to a good young man too a tenant of his we were all tenants of his that man's who stands there the other is his brother the worst of a bad race It was with the greatest difficulty that the boy gathered bodily force to speak, but his spirit spoke with a dreadful emphasis We were so robbed by that man who stands there as all we common dogs are by those superior beings Taxed by him without mercy Obliged to work for him without pay Obliged to grind our corn at his mill obliged to feed scores of his tame birds on our wretched crops And Forbidden for our lives to keep a single tame bird of our own Pillaged and plundered to that degree that when we chanced to have a bit of meat We ate it in fear with the door barred and the shutters closed that his people should not see it and take it from us I Say we were so robbed and hunted and made so poor That our father told us it was a dreadful thing to bring a child into the world and that what we should most pray for Was that our women should be barren? and our miserable race die out i had never before seen the sense of being oppressed bursting forth like a fire i had supposed that it must be latent in the people somewhere but i had never seen it break out until i saw it in the dying boy nevertheless doctor my sister married he was ailing at that time poor fellow and she married her lover that she might tend and comfort him in our cottage Dog-hut as that man would call it She had not been married many weeks when that man's brother saw her and admired her and asked that man to lend her to him For what are husband's among us? He was willing enough, but my sister was good and virtuous and hated his brother with a hatred as strong as mine What did the two then to persuade her husband to use his influence with her to make her willing? the boys eyes which had been fixed on mine slowly turned to the looker on and i saw in the two faces that all he said was true the two opposing kinds of pride confronting one another i can see even in this bastille the gentleman's all negligent indifference the peasant's all trodden down sentiment and passionate revenge you know doctor that it is among the rights of these nobles to harness us common dogs to carts and drive us they so harnessed him and drove him You know that it is among their rights to keep us in their grounds all night Quieting the frogs in order that their noble sleep might not be disturbed They kept him out in the unwholesome mists at night and ordered him back into harness in the day But he was not persuaded No Taken out of harness one day at noon to feed if he could find food He sobbed 12 times once for every stroke of the bell and died in her bosom Nothing human could have held life in the boy, but his determination to tell all his wrong He forced back the gathering shadows of death as he forced his clenched right hand to remain clenched and to cover his wound Then with that man's permission and even with his aid his brother took her away In spite of what I know she must have told his brother and what that is will not be long unknown to you, doctor if it is now His brother took her away for his pleasure and diversion for a little while. I Saw her pass me on the road When I took the tidings home our father's heart burst He never spoke one of the words that filled it I Took my young sister for I have another to a place beyond the reach of this man and where at least she will never be his vassal then I tracked the brother here and last night climbed in A Common dog, but sword in hand Where is the loft window it was somewhere here the room was darkening to his sight the world was narrowing around him I Glanced about me and saw that the hay and straw were trampled over the floor as if there had been a struggle She heard me and ran in I told her not to come near us till he was dead He came in and first tossed me some pieces of money then struck at me with a whip But I though a common dog so struck at him as to make him draw Let him break into as many pieces as he will the sword that he stained with my common blood He drew to defend himself thrust at me with all his skill for his life My glance had fallen but a few moments before on the fragments of a broken sword lying among the hay That weapon was a gentleman's in another place lay an old sword that seemed to have been a soldier's now lift me up doctor lift me up where is he he is not here i said supporting the boy thinking that he had referred to the brother he proud as these nobles are he is afraid to see me where is the man who is here turn my face to him i did so raising the boy's head against my knee but invested for the moment with extraordinary power he raised himself completely obliging me to rise too or i could not have still supported him marquis said the boy turned to him with his eyes opened wide and his right hand raised in the days when all these things are to be answered for i summon you and yours to the last of your bad race to answer for them i mark this cross of blood upon you as a sign that i do it in the days when all these things are to be answered for i summon your brother the worst of the bad race to answer for them separately i mark this cross of blood upon him as a sign that i do it twice he put his hand to the wound in his breast and with his forefinger drew a cross in the air he stood for an instant with the finger yet raised and as it dropped he dropped with it and i laid him down dead when i returned to the bedside of the young woman i found her raving in precisely the same order of continuity I knew that this might last for many hours and that it would probably end in the silence of the grave. I repeated the medicines I had given her, and I sat at the bedside of the bed until the night was far advanced. She never abated the piercing quality of her shrieks, never stumbled in the distinctness or the order of her words. They were always, My husband, my father, and my brother, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Hush This lasted 26 hours from the time when I first saw her I Had come and gone twice and was again sitting by her when she began to falter I Did what little could be done to assist that opportunity and by and by she sank into a lethargy and lay like the dead It was as if the wind and rain had lulled at last after a long fearful storm I released her arms and called the woman to assist me to compose her figure and the dress she had torn It was then that I knew her condition to be that of one in whom the first expectations of being a mother have arisen and It was then that I lost the little hope that I had of her Is she dead asked the Marquis whom I will still describe as the elder brother? Coming booted into the room from his horse not dead said I but like to die What Strength there is in these common bodies he said looking down at her with some curiosity There is prodigious strength. I answered him in sorrow and despair He first laughed at my words and then frowned at them He moved a chair with his foot near to mine ordered the woman away and said in a subdued voice Doctor finding my brother in this difficulty with these hinds. I recommended that your aid should be invited Your reputation is high and as a young man with your fortune to make you are probably mindful of your interest The things that you see here are things to be seen and not spoken of I Listened to the patient's breathing and avoided answering do you honor me with your attention doctor? Monsieur said I in my profession the communications of patients are always received in confidence I Was guarded in my answer for I was troubled in my mind with what I had heard and seen Her Breathing was so difficult to trace that I carefully tried the pulse and the heart There was life and no more Looking round as I resumed my seat. I found both the brothers intent upon me. I write with so much difficulty The cold is so severe. I am so fearful of being detected and consigned to an underground cell and total darkness That I must abridge this narrative There is no confusion or failure in my memory it can recall And Could detail every word that was ever spoken between me and those brothers She lingered for a week Towards the last I could understand some few syllables that she said to me by placing my ear close to her lips She asked me where she was and I told her who I was and I told her It was in vain that I asked her for her family name She faintly shook her head upon the pillow and kept her secret as the boy had done I had no opportunity of asking her any question until I had told the brothers that she was sinking fast and could not live another day Until then though no one was ever presented to her consciousness save the woman and myself One or other of them had always jealously sat behind the curtain at the head of the bed when I was there But when it came to that they seemed careless what communication I might hold with her as if the thought passed through my mind I were dying, too I Always observed that their pride bitterly resented the younger brothers as I call him having crossed swords with a peasant and That peasant a boy The only consideration that appeared to affect the mind of either of them was the consideration that this was highly degrading to the family and was ridiculous As often as I caught the younger brothers eyes their expression reminded me that he disliked me deeply for knowing what I knew from the boy He was smoother and more polite to me than the elder, but I saw this I Also saw that I was an encumbrance in the mind of the elder, too My patient died two hours before midnight at a time by my watch Answering almost to the minute when I had first seen her I was alone with her when her forlorn young head drooped gently on one side and all her earthly wrongs and sorrows ended the brothers were waiting in a room downstairs impatient to ride away. I Had heard them alone at the bedside Striking their boots with their riding-whips and loitering up and down At last she's dead said the elder when I went in she is dead said I I Congratulate you my brother were his words as he turned round He had before offered me money which I had postponed taking he now gave me a rouleau of gold I Took it from his hand but laid it on the table I had considered the question and had resolved to accept nothing Pray excuse me said I under the circumstances No they exchanged looks but bent their heads to me as I bent mine to them and we parted without another word on either side I Am weary 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 worn down by misery I cannot read what I've written with this gaunt hand Early in the morning the rouleau of gold was left at my door in a little box with my name on the outside from the first I had anxiously considered what I ought to do I Decided that day to write privately to the minister Stating the nature of the two cases to which I had been summoned and the place to which I had gone in effect stating all the circumstances I Knew what court influence was and what the immunities of the nobles were and i expected that the matter would never be heard of but i wished to relieve my own mind i had kept the matter a profound secret even from my wife and this too i resolved to state in my letter i had no apprehension whatever of my real danger but i was conscious that there might be danger for others if others were compromised by possessing the knowledge that i possessed I was much engaged that day and could not complete my letter that night I rose long before my usual time next morning to finish it It was the last day of the year The letter was lying before me just completed when I was told that a lady waited who wished to see me I Am growing more and more unequal to the task. I've set myself It is so cold so dark My senses so benumbed and the gloom upon me is so dreadful The lady was young engaging and handsome, but not marked for long life. She was in great agitation She presented herself to me as the wife of the Marquis Saint-Evremont I connected the title by which the boy had addressed the elder brother with the initial letter Embroidered on the scarf and had no difficulty in arriving at the conclusion that I had seen that nobleman very lately My memory is still accurate But I cannot write the words of our conversation I Suspect that I am watched more closely than I was and I know not at what times I may be watched She had in part suspected and in part discovered the main facts of the cruel story of her husband's share in it and my being resorted to She did not know that the girl was dead her hope had been she said in great distress to show her in secret a woman's sympathy Her hope had been to avert the wrath of heaven from a house that had long been hateful to the suffering many She had reasons for believing that there was a young sister living and her greatest desire was to help that sister I Could tell her nothing, but that there was such a sister beyond that I knew nothing Her inducement to come to me relying on my confidence had been the hope that I could tell her the name and place of abode Whereas to this wretched hour. I am ignorant of both These scraps of paper fail me one was taken from me with a warning yesterday. I Must finish my record today She was a good compassionate lady and not happy in her marriage How could she be the brother distrusted and disliked her and his influence was all opposed to her? She stood in dread of him And in dread of her husband, too When I handed her down to the door there was a child a pretty boy from two to three years old in her carriage For his sake doctor she said pointing to him in tears. I would do all I can to make what poor amends I can He will never prosper in his inheritance otherwise I have a presentiment that if no other innocent atonement is made for this it will one day be required of him What I have left to call my own it is little beyond the worth of a few jewels I Will make it the first charge of his life to bestow with the compassion and lamenting of his dead mother on this injured family If the sister can be discovered She kissed the boy and said caressing him it is for thine own dear sake Thou wilt be faithful little Charles the child answered her bravely Yes I Kissed her hand and she took him in her arms and went away caressing him. I never saw her more As she had mentioned her husband's name and the fate that I knew it I added no mention of it to my letter I Sealed my letter and not trusting it out of my own hands delivered it myself that day That night the last night of the year towards nine o'clock a man in a black dress rang at my gate demanded to see me and softly followed my servant Ernest Defarge a youth upstairs When my servant came into the room where I sat with my wife Oh my wife beloved of my heart my fair young English wife We saw the man who was supposed to be at the gate standing silent behind him an Urgent case in the Rue St. Honoré he said it would not detain me he had a coach in waiting It brought me here. It brought me to my grave When I was clear of the house a black muffler was drawn tightly over my mouth from behind and my arms were pinioned The two brothers crossed the road from a dark corner and identified me with a single gesture The Marquis took from his pocket the letter I had written Showed it to me burnt it in the light of a lantern that was held and extinguished the ashes with his foot Not a word was spoken I was brought here. I was brought to my living grave If it had pleased God to put in the hard heart of either of the brothers in all these frightful years To grant me any tidings of my dearest wife so much as to let me know by a word whether alive or dead I Might have thought that he had quite not abandoned them But now I believe that the mark of the Red Cross is fatal to them and that they have no part in his mercies and them and their descendants to the last of their race i alexandre manette unhappy prisoner do this last night of the year seventeen sixty seven in my unbearable agony denounce to the times when all these things shall be answered for i denounce them to heaven and to earth end of section seven
4: International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meridiculus. International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. Edited by William Patton. Section 8, The Cauldron of Oil, by Wilkie Collins about one french league distant from the city of toulouse there is a village called croix dorade in the military history of england this place is associated with a famous charge of the eighteenth Hussars, which united two separated columns of the british army on the day before the duke of wellington fought the battle of toulouse in the criminal history of france the village is memorable as the scene of a daring crime which was discovered and punished under circumstances sufficiently remarkable to merit preservation in the form of a plain narrative one the persons of the drama in the year seventeen hundred the resident priest of the village of croix was monsieur pierre Celestin he was a man of no extraordinary energy or capacity simple in his habits and sociable in his disposition his character was irreproachable he was strictly conscientious in the performance of his duties, and he was universally respected and beloved by all his parishioners. Among the members of his flock, there was a family named Siadou. The head of the household, Sarronan Siadou, had been long established in business at Quaidoade as an oil manufacturer. At the period of the events now to be narrated, he had attained the age of sixty and was a widower. His family consisted of five children three young men, who helped him in the business, and two daughters. His nearest living relative was his sister, the widow Mirai. The widow resided principally at Toulouse. Her time in that city was mainly occupied in winding up the business affairs of her deceased husband, which had remained unsettled for a considerable period after his death, through delays in realizing certain sums of money owing to his representative. The widow had been left very well provided for, She was still a comely attractive woman, and more than one substantial citizen of Toulouse had shown himself anxious to persuade her into marrying for the second time. But the widow Mirai lived on terms of great intimacy and affection with her brother Siadou and his family. She was sincerely attached to them, and sincerely unwilling, at her age, to deprive her nephews and nieces, by a second marriage, of the inheritance, or even of a portion of the inheritance which would otherwise fall to them on her death. Animated by these motives, she closed her doors resolutely on all suitors who attempted to pay their court to her, with the one exception of a master butcher of Toulouse whose name was Cantegrel. This man was a neighbor of the widows and had made himself useful by assisting her in the business complications which still hung about the realization of her late husband's estate. The preference which she showed for the master butcher was thus far of the purely negative kind, she gave him no absolute encouragement. She would not for a moment admit that there was the slightest prospect of her ever marrying him, but at the same time she continued to receive his visits, and she showed no disposition to restrict the neighborly intercourse between them, for the future within purely formal bounds. Under these circumstances, Sardinan-Siadoux began to be alarmed and to think it time to bestir himself. He had no personal acquaintance with Comte-Grel, Who never visited the village, and Monsieur Chaubard, to whom he might otherwise have applied for advice, was not in a position to give an opinion. The priest and the master butcher did not even know each other by sight. In this difficulty, Siadou bethought himself of inquiring privately at Toulouse, in the hope of discovering some scandalous passages in Cantegrel's early life which might fatally degrade him in the estimation of the widow Mirail. The investigation, as usual in such cases, produced rumors and reports in plenty, the greater part of which dated back to a period of the butcher's life when he had resided in the ancient town of Narbonne. One of these rumors, especially, was of so serious a nature that Siadoux determined to test the truth or falsehood of it personally by travelling to Narbonne. He kept his intention a secret, not only from his sister and his daughters, but also from his sons. They were young men, not overpatient in their tempers, and he doubted their discretion. Thus, nobody knew his real purpose but himself when he left home. His safe arrival at Narbonne was notified in a letter to his family. The letter entered into no particulars relating to his secret errand. It merely informed his children of the day when they might expect him back. And of certain social arrangements which he wished to be made to welcome him on his return. He proposed on his way home to stay two days at castel for the purpose of paying a visit to an old friend who was settled there. According to this plan, his return to croix would be deferred until Tuesday the 26th of April, when his family might expect to see him about sunset in good time for supper. He further desired that a little party of friends might be invited to the meal to celebrate the 26th of April Which was a feast day in the village as well as to celebrate his return The guests whom he wished to be invited were first his sister Secondly, Monsieur Chaubard whose pleasant disposition made him a welcome guest at all the village festivals Thirdly and fourthly two neighbors businessmen like himself with whom he lived on terms of the friendliest intimacy That was the party and the family of Siadou took especial pains as the time approached to provide a supper worthy of the guests, who had all shown the heartiest readiness in accepting their invitations. This was the domestic position; these were the family prospects. On the morning of the twenty-sixth of April, a memorable day for years afterward, in the village of Quadoard. Two, the events of the day. Besides the curacy of the village church. Good Monsieur Chaubard held some ecclesiastical preferment in the Cathedral Church of St. Stephen at Toulouse. Early in the forenoon of the 26th certain matters connected with this preferment took him from his village curacy to the city, a distance which has been already described as not greater than one French league or between two and three English miles. After transacting his business, Monsieur Chaubard parted with his clerical brethren who left him by himself in the sacristy, or vestry, of the church. Before he had quitted the room in his turn, the beadle entered it and inquired for the abbé de Mariotte, one of the officiating priests attached to the cathedral. "'The abbé has just gone out,' replied Monsieur Chaubert. "'Who wants him?' "'A respectable-looking man,' said the beadle. "'I thought he seemed to be in some distress of mind when he spoke to me.' "'Did he mention his business with the abbé?' "'Yes, sir,' he expressed himself as anxious to make his confession immediately. "'In that case,' said Monsieur Chobard, "'I may be of use to him in the abbé's absence, "'for I have authority to act here as confessor. "'Let us go into the church "'and see if this person feels disposed to accept my services.' "'When they went into the church, "'they found the man walking backward and forward "'in a restless, disordered manner.' His looks were so strikingly suggestive of some serious mental perturbation that M. Chaubard found it no easy matter to preserve his composure when he first addressed himself to the stranger. "'I am sorry,' he began, "'that the Abbé de Mariotte is not here to offer you his services.' "'I want to make my confession,' said the man, looking about him vacantly, as if the priest's words had not attracted his attention. "'You can do so at once, if you please,' said M. Chaubard. I am attached to this church, and I possess the necessary authority to receive confessions in it. Perhaps, however, you are personally acquainted with the Abbé de Mariotte? Perhaps you'd prefer waiting? No, said the man roughly. I would as soon, or sooner, confess to a stranger. In that case, replied Monsieur Chaubert, be so good as to follow me. He led the way to the confessional. The beadle, whose curiosity was excited, waited a little and looked after them. In a few minutes he saw the curtains, which were sometimes used to conceal the face of the officiating priest, suddenly drawn. The penitent knelt with his back turned to the church. There was literally nothing to see, but the beetle waited nevertheless, in expectation of the end. After a long lapse of time, the curtain was withdrawn, and the priest and penitent left the confessional. The change which the interval had worked in Monsieur Chaubard was so extraordinary that the Beadle's attention was altogether withdrawn in the interest of observing it from the man who had made the confession. He did not remark by which door the stranger left the church. His eyes were fixed on Monsieur Chaubard. The priest's naturally ruddy face was as white as if he had just risen from a long sickness. He looked straight before him with a state of terror, and he left the church as hurriedly as if he had been a man escaping from prison, left it without a parting word or farewell look, "'although he was noted for his courtesy to his inferiors "'on all ordinary occasions. "'Good Monsieur Chobard has heard more than he bargained for,' "'said the beetle, wandering back to the empty confessional "'with an interest which he had never felt in it till that moment. "'The day wore on as quietly as usual in the village of croix "'At the appointed time, the supper-table was laid for the guests "'in the house of Sardinan-Siadou. "'The widow Mirai and the two neighbors arrived a little before sunset.' M. Chaubard, who was usually punctual, did not make his appearance with them, and when the daughters of saint Siadou siadoux looked out from the upper windows, they saw no signs on the high road of their father's return. Sunset came, and still neither Siadoux nor the priest appeared. The little party sat waiting round the table, and waited in vain. Before long a message was sent up from the kitchen, representing that the supper must be eaten forthwith, or be spoiled, and the company began to debate the two alternatives of waiting or not waiting any longer It is my belief said the widow Miraille, that my brother is not coming home tonight When Monsieur Chaubard joins us we had better sit down to supper Can any accident have happened to my father asked one of the two daughters anxiously God forbid said the widow God forbid repeated the two neighbors looking expectantly at the empty supper table it has been a wretched day for traveling said louis the eldest son it rained in torrents all day yesterday added thomas the second son and your father's rheumatism makes him averse to traveling in wet weather suggested the widow thoughtfully very true said the first of the two neighbors shaking his head piteously at his passive knife and fork another message came up from the kitchen and peremptorily forbade the company to wait any longer "'But where is Monsieur Chaubert?' said the widow. "'Has he been taking a journey, too? "'Why, is he absent? Has anybody seen him to-day?' "'I have seen him to-day,' said the youngest son, "'who had not spoken yet. "'This young man's name was Jean. "'He was little given to talking, "'but he had proved himself on various domestic occasions "'to be the quickest and most observant member of the family. "'Where did you see him?' asked the widow. "'I met him this morning on his way into Toulouse.' has he not fallen ill i hope did he look out of sorts when you met him he was in excellent health and spirits, said jean i never saw him look better and i never saw him look worse said the second of the neighbors striking into the conversation with the aggressive fretfulness of a hungry man what this morning cried jean in astonishment no this afternoon said the neighbor i saw him going into our church here he was white as our plates will be When they come up, and what is almost as extraordinary, he passed without taking the slightest notice of me. Jean relapsed into his customary silence. It was getting dark. The clouds had gathered while the company had been talking, and at the first pause in the conversation, the rain, falling again in torrents, made itself drearily audible. Dear, dear me, said the widow. If it was not raining so hard, we might send somebody to inquire after good Monsieur Chaubert. I'll go and inquire, said Thomas Yadou. It's not five minutes' walk. Have up the supper. I'll take a cook with me. And if our excellent Monsieur Chobar is out of his bed, I'll bring him back to answer for himself. With those words, he left the room. The supper was put on the table forthwith. The hungry neighbor disputed with nobody from that moment, and the melancholy neighbor recovered his spirits. On reaching the priest's house, Thomas Yadou found him sitting alone in his study. He started to his feet, with every appearance of the most violent alarm when the young man entered the room i beg your pardon sir said thomas i'm afraid i've startled you what do you want asked Monsieur Chaubard in a singularly abrupt bewildered manner have you forgotten sir that this is the night of our supper remonstrated thomas my father has not come back and we can only suppose at those words the priest dropped into his chair again and trembled from head to foot "'Amazed to the last degree by this extraordinary reception of his remonstrance, "'Thomas Yadou remembered, at the same time, "'that he had engaged to bring M. Chobard back with him, "'and he determined to finish his civil speech as if nothing had happened. "'We are all of opinion,' he resumed, "'that the weather has kept my father on the road. "'But that is no reason, sir, why the supper should be wasted, "'or why you should not make one of us, as you promised. "'Here is a good warm cloak.' "'I can't come,' said the priest.' i'm ill i'm in bad spirits i'm not fit to go out he sighed bitterly and hid his face in his hands don't say that sir persisted thomas if you are out of spirits let us try to cheer you and you in your turn will enliven us they are all waiting for you at home don't refuse sir pleaded the young man or we shall think we have offended you in some way you have always been a good friend to our family monsieur chobard again rose from his chair with the second change of manner as extraordinary and as perplexing as the first his eyes moistened as if the tears were rising in them he took the hand of tomas y and pressed it long and warmly in his own there was a curious mixed expression of pity and fear in the look which he now fixed on the young man of all the days in the year he said very earnestly don't doubt my friendship today ill as i am i will make one of this supper party for your sake and for my father's sake added Thomas persuasively let us go to the supper said the priest Thomas siadu wrapped the cloak round him and they left the house everyone at the table noticed the change in Monsieur Chaubard. he accounted for it by declaring confusedly that he was suffering from nervous illness and then added that he would do his best notwithstanding to promote the social enjoyment of the evening his talk was fragmentary and his cheerfulness was sadly forced, but he contrived with these drawbacks to take his part in the conversation, except in the case when it happened to turn on the absent master of the house. Whenever the name of Saturnin Siadou was mentioned, either by the neighbors, who politely regretted that he was not present, or by the family, who naturally talked about the resting place which he might have chosen for the night, Monsieur chaubard either relapsed into blank silence or abruptly changed the topic. Under these circumstances, the company, by whom he was respected and beloved, made the necessary allowances for his state of health. The only person among them who showed no desire to cheer the priest's spirits and to humor him in his temporary fretfulness being the silent younger son of Saturnin Both Louis and Thomas noticed that from the moment when Monsieur Chaubard's manner first betrayed his singular unwillingness to touch on the subject of their father's absence, Jean fixed his eyes on the priest with an expression of suspicious attention and never looked away from him for the rest of the evening. The young man's absolute silence at table did not surprise his brothers, for they were accustomed to his taciturn habits. But the sullen distrust, betrayed in his close observation of the honored guest and friend of the family, surprised and angered them. The priest himself seemed once or twice to be aware of the scrutiny to which he was subjected, and to feel uneasy and offended, as he naturally might. He abstained, however, from openly noticing Jean's strange behavior, and Louis and Thomas were bound, therefore, in common politeness, to abstain from noticing it also. The inhabitants of croix kept early hours. Toward eleven o'clock, the company rose and separated for the night, except the two neighbors. Nobody had enjoyed the supper, and even the two neighbors, having eaten their fill, were as glad to get home as the rest. In the little confusion of parting, Monsieur Chaubard completed the astonishment of the guests at the extraordinary change in him by slipping away alone without waiting to bid anybody good night. The Widow Miraille and her nieces withdrew to their bedrooms and left the three brothers by themselves in the parlor. Jean, said Thomas Yadou, I have a word to say to you. You stared at our good Monsieur Chaubard in a very offensive manner all through the evening. What did you mean by it? Wait till tomorrow, said Jean, and perhaps I may tell you. He lit his candle and left them. Both the brothers observed that his hand trembled, and that his manner, never very winning, was on that night more serious and more unsociable than usual. Three. The Younger Brother When post time came on the morning of the twenty seventh, no letter arrived from Sardinan siadoux. On consideration, The family interpreted this circumstance in a favorable light. If the master of the house had not written to them, it followed, surely, that he meant to make writing unnecessary by returning on that day. As the hours passed, the widow and her nieces looked out from time to time for the absent man. Toward noon, they observed a little assembly of people approaching the village. Ere long, on a nearer view, they recognized at the head of the assembly the chief magistrate of Toulouse in his official dress. He was accompanied by his assessor, also in official dress, by an escort of archers, and by certain subordinates attached to the town hall. These last appeared to be carrying some burden, which was hidden from view by the escort of archers. The procession stopped at the house of Saturnin Siadoux, and the two daughters, hastening to the door to discover what had happened, met the burden which the men were carrying, and saw, stretched on a litter. The dead body of their father. The corpse had been found that morning on the banks of the river Lair. It was stabbed in eleven places with knife or dagger wounds. None of the valuables about the dead man's person had been touched. His watch and his money were still in his pockets. Whoever had murdered him had murdered him for vengeance, not for gain. Some time elapsed before even the male members of the family were sufficiently composed to hear what the officers of justice had to say to them. When this result had been at length achieved, and when the necessary inquiries had been made, no information of any kind was obtained, which pointed to the murderer in the eye of the law. After expressing his sympathy and promising that every available means should be tried to effect the discovery of the criminal, the chief magistrate gave his orders to his escort and withdrew when night came the sister and the daughters of the murdered man retired to the upper part of the house exhausted by the violence of their grief the three brothers were left once more alone in the parlor to speak together of the awful calamity which had befallen them they were of hot southern blood and they looked on one another with a southern thirst for vengeance in their tearless eyes the silent younger son was now the first to open his lips you charged me yesterday he said to his brother Thomas, with looking strangely at Monsieur Chobard all the evening, and I answered that I might tell you why I looked at him when tomorrow came. Tomorrow has come, and I'm ready to tell you. He waited a little, and lowered his voice to a whisper when he spoke again. When Monsieur Chaubard was at our supper table last night, he said, I had it in my mind that something had happened to our father, and that the priest knew it, The two elder brothers looked at him in speechless astonishment. Our father has been brought back to us a murdered man, Jean went on, still in a whisper. I tell you, Louis, and you, Thomas, that the priest knows who murdered him. Louis and Thomas shrank from their younger brother, as if he had spoken blasphemy. Listen, said Jean. No clue has been found to the secret of the murder. The magistrate has promised us to do his best but I saw in his face that he had little hope. We must make the discovery ourselves, or our father's blood will have cried to us for vengeance and cried in vain. Remember that and mark my next words. You heard me say yesterday evening that I had met Monsieur Chobard on his way to Toulouse in excellent health and spirits. You heard our old friend and neighbor contradict me at the supper table and declare that he had seen the priest some hours later go into our church here with the face of a panic-stricken man you saw thomas how he behaved when you went to fetch him to our house you saw louis what his looks were like when he came in the change was noticed by everybody what was the cause of it i saw the cause in the priest's own face when our father's name turned up in the talk round the supper table did monsieur chaubard join in that talk he was the only person present Who never joined in it once. Did he change it? On a sudden, whenever it came his way, it came his way four times, and four times he changed it, trembling, stammering, turning whiter and whiter, but still as true as the heaven above us, shifting the talk off himself every time. Are you men? Have you brains in your heads? Don't you see as I see what this leads to? On my salvation, I swear it, The priest knows the hand that killed our father." The faces of the two elder brothers darkened vindictively as the conviction of the truth fastened itself on their minds. How could he know it? they inquired eagerly. He must tell him himself, said Jean. And if he hesitates, if he refuses to open his lips, we must open them by main force. They drew their chairs together after that last answer And consulted for some time in whispers. When the consultation was over, the brothers rose and went into the room where the dead body of their father was laid out. The three kissed him in turn on the forehead, then took hands together and looked meaningly in each other's faces, then separated. Louis and Thomas put on their hats and went at once to the priest's residence, while Jean withdrew by himself to the great room at the back of the house which was used for the purposes of the oil factory only one of the workmen was left in the place he was watching an immense cauldron of boiling linseed oil you can go home said Jean, patting the man kindly on the shoulder there is no hope of a night's rest for me after the affliction that has befallen us i will take your place at the cauldron go home my good fellow go home the man thanked him and withdrew Jean followed And satisfied himself that the workmen had really left the house he then returned and sat down by the boiling cauldron meanwhile Louis and Thomas presented themselves at the priest's house he had not yet retired to bed and he received them kindly but with the same extraordinary agitation in his face and manner which had surprised all who saw him on the previous day the brothers were prepared beforehand with an answer when he inquired what they wanted of him They replied immediately that the shock of their father's horrible death had so seriously affected their aunt and their eldest sister that it was feared the minds of both might give way, unless spiritual consolation and assistance were afforded to them that night. The unhappy priest, always faithful and self-sacrificing, where the duties of his ministry were in question, at once rose to accompany the young men back to the house. He even put on his surplice and took the crucifix with him to impress his words of comfort all the more solemnly on the afflicted women whom he was called on to succour thus innocent of all suspicion of the conspiracy to which he had fallen a victim he was taken into the room where jean sat waiting by the cauldron of oil and the door was locked behind him before he could speak Thomas Siadoux openly avowed the truth it is we three who want you he said not our aunt and not our sister, if you answer our questions truly, you have nothing to fear. If you refuse, he stopped and looked toward Jean and the boiling cauldron. Never, at the best of times, a resolute man, deprived since the day before of such resources of energy as he possessed by the mental suffering which he had undergone in secret, the unfortunate priest trembled from head to foot as the three brothers closed round him. Louis took the crucifix from him and held it, Thomas forced him to place his right hand on it. Jean stood in front of him and put the questions. Our father has been brought home a murdered man, he said. Do you know who killed him? The priest hesitated, and the two elder brothers moved him nearer to the cauldron. Answer us on peril of your life, said Jean. Say, with your hand on the blessed crucifix, do you know the man who killed our father? I do know him when did you make the discovery yesterday where at toulouse name the murderer at those words the priest closed his hand fast on the crucifix and rallied his sinking courage never he said firmly the knowledge i possessed was obtained in the confessional the secrets of the confessional are sacred if i betray them i commit sacrilege i will die first think said jean if you keep silence you screen the murderer if you keep silence you are the murderer's accomplice we have sworn over our father's dead body to avenge him if you refuse to speak we will avenge him on you i charge you again name the man who killed him i will die first the priest reiterated as firmly as before die then said jean die in that cauldron of boiling oil give him time cried louis and thomas earnestly pleading together we'll give him time said the younger brother there is the clock yonder against the wall we will count five minutes by it in those five minutes let him make his peace with god or make up his mind to speak they waited watching the clock in that dreadful interval the priest dropped on his knees and hid his face the time passed in dead silence speak for your own sake For our sakes, speak, said Thomas Yadou, as the minute hand reached the point at which the five minutes expired. The priest looked up. His voice died away on his lips. The mortal agony broke out on his face in great drops of sweat. His head sank forward on his breast. Lift him, cried Jean, seizing the priest on one side. Lift him and throw him in. The two elder brothers advanced a step and hesitated. Lift him on your oath over our father's body. The two brothers seized him on the other side. As they lifted him to a level with the cauldron, the horror of the death that threatened him burst from the lips of the miserable man in a scream of terror. The brothers held him firm at the cauldron's edge. Name the man, they said for the last time. The priest's teeth chattered. He was speechless. But he made a sign with his head, a sign in the affirmative. They placed him in a chair and waited patiently until he was able to speak. His first words were words of entreaty. He begged Thomas to give him back the crucifix. When it was placed in his possession, he kissed it and said faintly, I ask pardon of God for the sin that I am about to commit. He paused and then looked up at the younger brother, who still stood in front of him. I am ready, he said. Question me and I will answer. Jean repeated the questions which he had put when the priest was first brought into the room. You know the murderer of our father? I know Mm -hmm. him. Since when? Since he made his confession to me yesterday in the Cathedral of Toulouse. Name him. His name is Contagrel. The man who wanted to marry our aunt? The same. What brought him to the confessional? His own remorse. What were the motives for his crime? There were reports against his character, and he discovered that your father had gone privately to Narbonne to make sure they were true. Did our father make sure of their truth? He did. Would those discoveries have separated our aunt from Contagrel if our father had lived to tell her of them? They would. If your father had lived, he would have told your aunt that Contagrel was married already, that he had deserted his wife at Narbonne, that she was living there with another man, under another name and that she had herself confessed it in your father's presence. Where was the murder committed? Between Villefranche and this village. Cantegrel had followed your father to Narbonne and had followed him back again to Villefranche. As far as that place, he traveled in company with others, both going and returning. Beyond Villefranche, he was left alone at the ford over the river. There, Cantegrel drew the knife to kill him before he reached home and told his news to your aunt. How was the murder committed? It was committed while your father was watering his pony by the bank of the stream. Contagrel stole on him from behind and struck him as he was stooping over the saddle-bow. This is the truth on your oath? On my oath it is the truth. You may leave us. The priest rose from his chair without assistance. From the time when the terror of death had forced him to reveal the murderer's name, A great change had passed over him. He had given his answers with the immovable calmness of a man on whose mind all human interests had lost their hold. He now left the room, strangely absorbed in himself, moving with the mechanical regularity of a sleepwalker, lost to all perception of things and persons about him. At the door he stopped, woke as it seemed from the trance that possessed him, and looked at the three brothers with a steady, changeless sorrow, which they had never seen in him before, which they never afterward forgot. I forgive you, he said, quietly and solemnly. Pray for me when my time comes. With those last words he left them. 4. The End The night was far advanced, but the three brothers determined to set forth instantly for Toulouse and to place their information in the magistrate's hands before the morning dawned thus far no suspicion had occurred to them of the terrible consequences which were to follow their night in review with the priest. they were absolutely ignorant of the punishment to which a man in holy orders exposed himself if he revealed the secrets of the confessional no infliction of that punishment had been known in their neighborhood for at that time as at this the rarest of all priestly offences was a violation of the sacred trust confided to the confessor by the roman church Conscious that they had forced the priest into the commission of a clerical offense, the brother sincerely believed that the loss of his curacy would be the heaviest penalty which the law could exact from him. They entered Toulouse that night, discussing the atonement which they might offer to Monsieur Chobard, and the means by which they might best employ to make his future easy to him. The first disclosure of the consequences, which would certainly follow the outrage they had committed, was revealed to them When they made their deposition before the officer of justice The magistrate listened to their narrative with horror vividly expressed in his face and manner Better you had never been born he said than have avenged your father's death as you three have avenged it Your own act has doomed the guilty and the innocent to suffer alike Those words proved prophetic of the truth the end came quickly as the priest had foreseen it when he spoke his parting words the arrest of canterrel was accomplished without difficulty the next morning in the absence of any other evidence on which to justify this proceeding the private disclosure to the authorities of the secret which the priest had violated became inevitable the parliament of languedoc was under these circumstances the tribunal appealed to and the decision of that assembly immediately ordered the priest and the three brothers to be placed in confinement as well as the murderer canterrel evidence was then immediately sought for which might convict this last criminal without any reference to the revelation that had been forced from the priest and evidence enough was found to satisfy judges whose minds already possessed the foregone certainty of the prisoner's guilt he was put on his trial was convicted of the murder and was condemned to be broken on the wheel the sentence was rigidly executed with as little delay as the law would permit the cases of m and of the three sons of Siadou next occupied the judges. The three brothers were found guilty of having forced the secret of a confession from a man in holy orders. The cases of Monsieur Chaubert and of the three sons of Siadou next occupied the judges. The three brothers were found guilty of having forced the secret of a confession from a man in holy orders and were sentenced to death by hanging. A far more terrible expiation of his offense awaited the unfortunate priest he was condemned to have his limbs broken on the wheel and to be afterward while still living bound to the stake and destroyed by fire barbarous as the punishments of that period were accustomed as the population was to hear of their infliction and even to witness it the sentences pronounced in these two cases dismayed the public mind and the authorities were surprised by receiving petitions for mercy from Toulouse and from all the surrounding neighborhood but the priest's doom had been sealed all that could be obtained by the intercession of persons of the highest distinction was that the executioner should grant him the mercy of death before his body was committed to the flames with this one modification the sentence was executed as the sentence had been pronounced on the curate of kwadoad the punishment of the three sons of siadu remained to be inflicted but the people roused by the death of the ill-fated priest rose against this third execution with a resolution before which the local government gave way. The cause of the young men was taken up by the hot-blooded populace as the cause of all fathers and all sons. Their filial piety was exalted to the skies, their youth was pleaded in their behalf, their ignorance of the terrible responsibility which they had confronted in forcing the secret from the priest was loudly alleged in their favor. More than this, the authorities were actually warned that the appearance of the prisoners on the scaffold would be the signal for an organized revolt and rescue under this serious pressure the execution was deferred and the prisoners were kept in confinement until the popular ferment had subsided the delay not only saved their lives it gave them back their liberty as well the infection of the popular sympathy had penetrated through the prison doors all three brothers were handsome well-grown young men the gentlest of the three in disposition Thomas Yadou, aroused the interest and won the affection of the head jailer's daughter. Her father was prevailed on, at her intercession, to relax a little in his customary vigilance, and the rest was accomplished by the girl herself. One morning, the population of Toulouse heard, with every testimony of the most extravagant rejoicing, that the three brothers had escaped, accompanied by the jailer's daughter. As a necessary legal formality, they were pursued, but no extraordinary efforts were used to overtake them, and they succeeded accordingly in crossing the nearest frontier. Twenty days later, orders were received from the capital to execute their sentence in effigy. They were then permitted to return to France, on condition that they never again appeared in their native place or in any other part of the province of Languedoc. With this reservation, they were left free to live where they pleased and to repent the fatal act which had avenged them on the murderer of their father at the cost of the priest's life. Beyond this point, the official documents do not enable us to follow their career. All that is now known has now been told of the village tragedy at croix End of section 8